<laughs> I have an announcement to make. Excuse me. Uh, recently, I, uh, we, mm -hmm. sent some letters to some major universities. Told them all about us, our team, what we've been doing. And uh, yesterday, we got a response from Oklahoma City University. Aren't they uh, Anglo-Saxon, yes. Yes. It'll be the first Negro college in America. Well, one of the first Negro colleges in America to ever debate a white college. All right. University of Oklahoma. Not University of Oklahoma. Oklahoma City University. The debate will take place at an off-campus site. Wait, an off-campus site? Why? Because sometimes, Mr. Lowe, you have to take things one step at a time. Oh, so what you're saying is that the crackers in Oklahoma ain't gonna let us no, on the campus. No, what I'm saying is you have to take things one step at a time. This is a great opportunity. Thank you very much. This is a great opportunity. <laughs> Master just done on our... Give us a crumb off his plate, huh? What? I think Lowe here is afraid. What am I afraid of, James? I think you're afraid to debate white people. Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mr. Tolson, let me debate. I mean, I'll debate Anglo-Saxons <laughs> anywhere. In a dark alley with no light, with a <laughs> candle lit and people chasing you down with guns. No, I'll debate Anglo-Saxons anywhere. I ain't afraid. I am. Dillard University sent shockwaves through the collegiate mock trial community last month when the unranked team advanced to the American Mock Trial Association's National Championship Tournament. So I will begin with the team that finished uh, with the best record. Uh, we had one team finish with seven wins, zero losses, and one tie. Jesus. Team 12-16. This is the first time Dillard has made it to the final round of the championship, which takes place this weekend. Education reporter Aubrey Uhas says there are some other important firsts. It's the first year a team from Louisiana has earned a bid in the championship. And the first time more than one historically black college or university will be represented. Since Dillard, New Orleans' smallest HBCU, will be joined by Washington, D.C.'s Howard University. Dillard mock trial coach Adria Kimbrough says most of her students are relatively new to the competitive world of mock trial. We are a team from a very small, under-resourced institution competing in a space that favors those with privilege and resources. Mock trial teams are typically associated with prep schools and elite private universities. And the team at Dillard has been around for less than a decade. Just two of its 15 members did mock trial in high school, and most of the students received financial aid and balanced jobs with full-time course loads. Senior Lajeunet Shelton says what the team lacks in experience, they make up for in hard work and talent. I think a lot of our team members have a lot of natural abilities that help play into the sport of mock trial. It's just that not all of us started out with knowing what mock trial is and knowing the whole law and the rules of evidence, but we have this innate ability to advocate. And I think that's what makes our team like a great team. While Dillard's mock trial team has had a successful season, they've faced a number of challenges, including Hurricane Ida, which displaced students and forced the team to miss several tournaments. Dillard was unranked heading into the qualifying round last month, which meant they had to face the best teams first. Before even all of that, before we even get to the competition, I asked Ms. Kimbrough, oh, how, are, how do they pick the rounds? And she said, objection, relevance, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how they pick who you go against. 
just just perform. So we just perform. And we do really good. Slurred ended up with the best record that day. Seven wins, one tie, and zero losses. So Lajene mentioned that they didn't know how the pairings were done. That was intentional. Because what starts to happen, you internalize those rankings and you start to think that somehow that means these other teams are better. And they're not. That's, that doesn't mean they're not bad, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to go in and be competitive. And that is exactly what they did. We, I mean, we could not be more proud. Lajeunet says while the team was relatively unknown going into the opening round, everyone knows who they are now. And while it would be great to win this weekend... I'm going in knowing that kind of wherever, however we do, this team is nationally ranked regardless. Like, we're, it's just trying to see where we fall between 1 and 48 at this point. And it's no longer about me. It's about what I'm leaving for this team. Kimbrough says whether they win or lose, the team has already created a legacy. A legacy for this team, a legacy for collegiate mock trial in the state of Louisiana, a legacy for um, what can happen at historically black colleges and universities who decide um, to have a team that they can excel at the highest level. She says the success of Dillard's mock trial team also sends the message that its members can one day be successful lawyers and win real cases. Lajene, who is majoring in psychology, not pre-law, says her experience with mock trial has led her to pursue a legal degree. And she plans to attend UC Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco this fall. In New Orleans, I'm Aubrey Uhas. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. There is new evidence about the disproportionate impact of air pollution in this country. A study out this week from the University of California, San Diego, shows that state environmental regulations have systemically protected the state's white residents over people of color. My colleague Amna Nawaz recently traveled to one community in San Diego grappling with the best path forward. Emily Villagrana has lived around San Diego's Barrio Logan neighborhood most of her life. She loves this area. Neighbors look out for each other, and it has a booming arts and restaurant scene. But there is a persistent problem here, the air. I can always tell when I go hiking outside of this neighborhood, you know, like my breathing improves. As a kid, Viagrana said she'd get frequent bronchial infections and headaches. She now has sinus pressure and a consistent itchy nose. Her mom and aunt have health issues too. They've never received an official diagnosis, but Viagrana believes it all comes back to pollutants in the air. I do question whether or not to have a child because I'd most likely raise it here in Barrio Logan and I'd be concerned about their health, knowing the um, impacts that the environment would have on their health. Barrio Logan sits right next to the port of San Diego, a hub for heavy trucks, cargo equipment, and ships. And decades ago, the neighborhood was sliced by Interstate 5 and the Coronado Bridge, which carry tens of thousands of cars a day. The combination has left the area with higher levels of diesel pollution than almost anywhere in the state of California. That is evident in its asthma rate, about seven times higher than the wealthy, mostly white community of La Jolla, some 15 miles away. 
and who calls Barrio Logan home, more than 70% of residents are Hispanic, and about 40% live below the poverty line. It feels like this is environmental racism. Millions of Americans across the country live in communities just like this, where the confluence of emissions from nearby industrial activity and major roadways means significantly higher levels of air pollution and greater health risk. And people of color are over three times more likely than white people to be breathing the nation's most polluted air. We've done a lot to move, uh, to, to reduce some of the emissions, uh, but we need to do a whole lot more. Diane Tekvorian is the executive director of the Environmental Health Coalition, or EHC, a nonprofit that's worked on environmental justice issues in San Diego for years. Tekvorian applauds the clean air plans put forth by the Biden administration and the state of California. A year and a half ago, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order requiring trucks like those going in and out of the port to be 100 percent zero emission by 2035. But Takvorian says that's not enough. Kids going to grow up in that life in that period of time from now to 2035. So they're going to be stuck for that entire period with uh, significant diesel pollution. We have to look at this in the face and say this is not OK. So EHC has pushed local leaders for broad policy shifts. They notched a major victory last fall when the Port of San Diego's Board of Commissioners signed off on a sweeping plan to curb air pollution. It calls for all trucks and cargo handling equipment at the Port of San Diego to switch to zero emissions by 2030, five years faster than the state's mandate. And it sets an interim goal of 40 percent of yearly truck trips to be zero emissions by 2026. Many residents and activists cheered the move, but some were less enthusiastic. Sharon Bernie Cloward is the president of the San Diego Port Tenants Association, a group of about 200 businesses and industries working up and down this bay. Businesses here also want cleaner air, she says, but they worry about the technology, infrastructure and money as the port moves to meet those goals. Our concerns are if we put some restrictions on just our port, the truckers are still going to have to deliver the material. They'll just go up the street to the neighbor. We don't want to lose that because you don't want to lose jobs during that. It's complicated. We're not against stuff. We're just showing that there are some complications and there are some things that are hard to get to. It doesn't mean we're, we're opposed to it. It means that we just need, we need these extra things. Dan Malcolm is the chair of the Port Board of Commissioners. He opposed the 2026 interim benchmark for zero emission trucks, but supported the overall 2030 goals. I understand that industry can be nervous. There is uncertainty. We don't know what technology is going to become available. We don't know economically what it's going to cost to implement that technology. But you have to start with the goal. And as chairman of the Port of San Diego, I would rather set that goal very aspirationally that shows the people of the community that we care, we care about their health. For some in this area, the port strategy signals a larger shift in the politics around environmental justice. In 2020, Nora Vargas became the first woman of color ever elected to the San Diego County Board of Supervisors. Born just across the border in Tijuana, she grew up in San Diego's South Bay, the area she now represents, and has made health equity a priority. I always say to folks, how is it possible that your zip code determines whether or not you can have access to clean air? And so for the first time, you're seeing a real true change in this area. 
Vargas points to other developments like a new community plan for Barrio Logan that could add green space freeway lids over the interstate and create a buffer zone between houses and the working waterfront. And with money from the county and the port, EHC is distributing air monitors and purifiers to more than 500 portside homes, awesome. like Emily Villagranas. She says cleaner air can't come soon enough. I don't know how much more time we can give. I mean, people are suffering. Their health is heavily impacted. We get promised a lot of things, and they say, yes, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, or this or that plan gets approved. But then it's like 20 years later, and it still hasn't happened. This time around, she and other residents of Barrio Logan are hoping it's different. I'm Amna Navaz in San Diego. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Since 2016, St. John the Baptist Parish residents and environmental groups have pushed for fewer emissions from a nearby chemical plant. In two complaints to the EPA, they argue that both Louisiana's Department of Environmental Quality and Department of Health failed to protect them. In St. James Parish, other groups filed a similar complaint, alleging that systemic racism within DEQ's processes locks out Black residents. On Wednesday, the EPA announced it would investigate all three complaints. Last year, the new EPA chief committed to using civil rights investigations to sniff out environmental injustice. The state's DEQ stands by its permitting, calling it impartial and unbiased. LDH says it is reviewing the complaints and taking them seriously. The federal agency has 180 days to investigate or come to a resolution with the state. In New Orleans, I'm Hallie Parker. Earlier today, L.A. County firefighter Dennis Vineyard was shot and killed battling a blaze at a suspected Compton drug den. We're at the Vineyard home right now, and uh, Lieutenant Vineyard's oldest son, Derek, has agreed to uh, talk with us for a moment. Derek, if you could come down here, please, for just a second. Look, I know this is tough, but um, how do you feel right now? How do you think I feel? I think it's typical. Typical how? Well, this country's becoming a haven for criminals, so what do you expect? You know, decent, hardworking Americans like my dad are getting rubbed out by social parasites. Parasites? Blacks, browns, yellow, whatever. I don't understand. You're saying that you think maybe your father's murder was race-related? Yeah, it's race-related. Every problem in this country is race-related, not just crime. It's like immigration, AIDS, welfare, those are problems of the black community, the Hispanic community, the Asian community. They're not white problems. Derek, aren't those really issues that deal more with poverty? No, you know, no. They're not products of their environments either. That's crap. Minorities don't give two shits about this country. They come here to exploit it, not to embrace it. What does this have to do I mean, to do millions of white European Americans came here and flourished, you know, within a generation. So what the fuck is the matter with these people? They have to go around shooting at firemen. What does this have to do with the murder of your father? Because my father was murdered doing his job. Putting out a fire in a fucking nigger neighborhood he shouldn't have even given a shit about. He got shot by a fucking drug dealer who probably still collects a welfare check. Tonight, there will be another call to permanently close a fire company in Delaware County that is caught up in a major firestorm. For now, the Briarcliff Fire Company is only suspended. The move comes amid an investigation into racist comments that were captured on a conference call. Action News reporter Corey Davis has the details now from Glen Olden. This evening, State Senator Anthony Williams and the Delaware County Black Caucus will be holding a press conference out here outside the Darby Township Municipal Building. They will be pushing for the Briarcliff Fire Company to be permanently disqualified from reopening. 
The Briarcliff Volunteer Fire Company is currently on an extended 90-day suspension. It all started back in February after recording captured the chief, along with others from the fire company, saying offensive comments about black firefighters and residents. Some of the comments included the use of the N-word and were about black firefighters being lazy and, quote, too many African-Americans living in the area. Comments were also made about the death of Fantability, the eight-year-old black girl killed by Sharon Hill police. Members of the community have been expressing concerns about what they believe to be a pattern of racism. It scares me because our lives are on the line. And we, we don't know what to do, like who to go to, who to trust. Sure. When you're calling for a fire or somebody's sick, you expect somebody to come with sympathy and empathy. Darby Township commissioners initially suspended the fire company for 30 days and then added 60 days on top of that. Today is the last time commissioners will have a full meeting before the suspension expires on May 8th. Commissioners are expected to face a lot of pressure tonight from the community to take steps that could ultimately lead to the shutdown of the Briarcliff Volunteer Fire Company. Reporting here in Glen Olden, Corey Davis, Channel 6 Action News. Who will pay reparations on my soul? California's Reparations Task Force is resuming its work on what the state owes black Californians. From member station KQED, Sarah Hosseini reports from the place where the task force meets today. The crowd is sparse here at the historic Third Baptist Church on Palm Sunday. Preaching, as he has for 46 years, is Dr. Amos Brown. Brown studied under Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and is an NAACP board member. His latest role is vice chair of California's Reparations Task Force, which was established through legislation back in 2020. It's a given. When you take away opportunity from people, you create chaos, you create carnage, you create conflict. Brown's congregation is located in San Francisco's Fillmore District, once known as the Harlem of the West. At its peak, around 4,000 African Americans worshipped here. Many of them had come to find work at the shipyards during World War II. Black people moved here in large numbers after Japanese Americans were forced into internment camps. Black residents had begun to build a thriving community until the city embarked on decades of what it called redevelopment that demolished Black neighborhoods because white government leaders called them slums. After they had become successful, here comes the body politic saying, you're going too far, you're going far enough. Brown says it's this history that's at the heart of the Reparations Task Force's work. For 10 months, the statewide group has heard testimony on slavery's legacy and how it's rippled into almost every aspect of life ever since. From lack of access to housing and bank loans, to environmentally unsafe neighborhoods and biased policing, to inadequate health care. This week's meeting will consider educational disparities. I taught here in San Francisco, in Berkeley. And discrimination was prominent. Carol O'Gilvy was a teacher at the time of desegregation busing efforts. She says the inequity continued anyway. You could walk down the hallway of a classroom and you could tell what students were, the low-performing students. Oh, they were all black. O'Gilvy says reparations could be one way of addressing a history of educational disparity. The task force will outline these and other harms in a detailed report set to be published in June. One issue it's already decided, 
who should get reparations. Some proponents say all Black people should be eligible. But Marcus Champion, with the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California, disagrees. He helped the task force hone in on descendants of slaves and free Blacks who lived in the U.S. before the 1900s. This is, in essence, a class action harm that's being examined. Champion says one way to atone is through individual cash payments. Another way could include free college tuition as a way to make up for stolen or lost opportunities. He says reparations could create a strong Black middle class and close the extreme racial wealth gap. The first step to changing the entire nation and making America all of what the Constitution says it's supposed to be. Number one, you give recompense to people that you have structurally held back for generations. The California task force is slated to end its work next year when it'll deliver a final reparations blueprint to state lawmakers. From there, the legislature will decide how and whether to implement the task force's recommendations. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Hosseini in San Francisco. The hunt is on. And you're the prey. Question, what is the state of Black America in 2022? A new report from the National Urban League paints a picture on everything from the economy to voting rights. John Yang has more on its findings. Judy, since 2005, the National Urban League has released an annual equality index to compare how black Americans are doing in comparison to white Americans. This year, the index shows that black Americans get only 73.9% of what white Americans enjoy, not much different from what it found in 2005. While there have been significant gains in some areas like economics and health circumstances, both up about 10 percentage points since the first report, in other areas like social justice and civic engagement, black Americans have lost ground, according to the report. Mark Morial is the president and CEO of the National Urban League, and he joins us from Atlanta, where he released the report earlier today. Mr. Morial, thanks for joining us. What does it say that in its been almost two decades since 2005, and yet the overall index number is is virtually the same. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. What it says is that the disparities in American life between blacks and whites are persistent, locked in, locked in in a sense of suspended animation, where you could have, as you indicated, some progress in some areas, and then a decline in other areas. But proverbially, it's the caboose on the train syndrome, where black Americans remain behind white Americans. Even when things improve for black Americans, they're improving at the same rate or even more for white Americans at the same time. So this is the persistent challenge for 21st century America. Can these gaps, these structural uh, gaps of racial inequality be closed in the 21st century. You talk about that, what you call the caboose syndrome, and we talk about the gains in, say, economics, but the gain means you're only up to about, uh, the black Americans are only up to about three-fifths of what white Americans uh, enjoy, and in health, health, it's about 84%. Talk a, bit, a little bit about those areas where there have been gains. So I think uh, the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of Medicaid had a dramatic impact uh, by increasing the number of black people who were insured. It closed uh, the health gap somewhat, but still 
a 16-point differential is too much. The discussion about race and racial justice in this country is not fact-based all too often. It's sometimes driven by what people think or perceive or uh, what they make in terms of political pronouncements. This gap remains wide. This gap remains the challenge for 21st century America. And the areas where the, this report shows a decline since 2005, education, social justice, a significant drop in social justice and civic engagement. Talk a little bit about that. The war on drugs, the broken nature of the criminal justice system, uh, the way in which police and communities are at odds, the way in which black people are shot in an unjustifiable fashion by the police, all of these contribute. The sentencing disparities, uh, and while there's been efforts to address this, they've not gone far enough. That contributes to the social justice gap that exists in the nation. In civic engagement and voting, a big focus of this report, uh, we saw significant gains where black voter turnout in the 2008 election exceeded white voter turnout. That reversed significantly in 2016 when you had Russian interference and post-Shelby v. Holder voter suppression laws. Uh, now in 2020, that gap in terms of voter turnout narrowed a bit, primarily because the pandemic forced states uh, to uh, be more visionary and I think uh, more open in allowing people to vote by mail, uh, to drop their ballot in a drop box, to utilize absentee voting. Voter suppression post-January 6th, the day of the insurrection, uh, where 40 states plus have introduced hundreds of bills uh, to take away uh, all of these expanded options for people to vote, uh, will narrow the civic engagement uh, or really widen the civic engagement gap if we do not do something. And that's why the report has a focus on this plot to what we think diminish and destroy American democracy. And that's also why, as I understand it, you chose to release this in Atlanta today, in Georgia. Uh, today, you kicked off a campaign at Clark Atlanta University called uh, Reclaim Your Vote. Talk about the, the, the efforts you're making in this midterm election year. I'm so glad you mentioned Clark Atlanta University and uh, the fact that we're here in Atlanta, which on one hand is the cradle of the civil rights movement. Dr. King, John Lewis, many other greats call Atlanta home. And this was, if you will, one of the epicenters of the 1960s civil rights movement. But then on the other hand, Georgia has become ground zero for voter suppression. The way in which the Georgia legislature has reacted to the January 5th election and then the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection is to li literally lead an assault uh, on the right of people to vote. So we thought we needed to come again to the front lines, the front lines of where people can really get a close-up look at what is happening here in Georgia. We also f believe that going to one of our great historically black universities and including the students from Spelman and Morehouse and Morris Brown along with the Clark Atlanta University community, places a spotlight on why protection of democracy and closing the racial gaps in this country is important to this next generation, to the students who now are 
in an activist mode, who now are poised to fight. And our civic engagement campaign says to people, frustration is not a strategy. Cynicism is not an option. We have to fight voter suppression, but we have to do everything in our power to participate in the elections this fall, because we've got to put this effort to remind people that if you do not have a seat at the table, you'll literally be on the menu. Mark Morial, president and CEO of the National Urban League. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The Turner Diaries sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Way Page, who shut up the Sikh temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists. Violent white and anti-government extremists are increasingly drawing the scrutiny of federal authorities. But the recent mistrials and acquittals in a high-profile case may have far-reaching implications. The case involved four men charged with plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan back in 2020. And to talk more about it, we're joined now by NPR's Odette Youssef, who covers domestic extremism. Hey, Odette. Hi there. Okay, so I remember back in October of 2020 when these arrests happened. Can you just remind us, like, what led up to this case? Sure. The investigation started when a man found a group called the Wolverine Watchmen on Facebook, apparently talking about killing law enforcement officers, and he notified local police. Well, he became an FBI informant, and ultimately, 14 men were charged at the state or federal levels for allegedly conspiring to kidnap Governor Whitmer, supposedly because they were upset about the anti-COVID lockdowns in the state. Four of those, Elsa, stood trial in federal court these last two months, Mm -hmm. and the jury could not come to a decision about two of them. But what's really remarkable is that they acquitted the other two. And that's notable for those who study this so-called entrapment defense. Right. Entrapment is a defense that rarely works, but it worked in this case. Can you just explain what these defendants were arguing when they say they were entrapped? They argued that the government essentially drove the plot that they were accused of through its use of undercover agents and paid informants. You know, the FBI often uses sting operations in counterterrorism cases. But, you know, as you said, defendants don't always invoke the entrapment defense because it's a pretty narrow legal standard. Um, I spoke with Jesse Norris about this. He's a professor at SUNY Fredonia. He says the entrapment defense has been used hundreds of times since 9-11. But by his count, this is the first time it succeeded in winning acquittals. Wow. Critics have been arguing that the FBI is engaging in entrapment in terrorism cases for many years. And one of the FBI's stock responses to that argument is that, well, they've raised the entrapment defense before and it's always failed. But I think now that argument's gone. And the government's level of involvement in this case, Elsa, was something that the defense really focused on. You know, some informants were paid tens of thousands of dollars, and there were allegedly more than a dozen informants and several undercover FBI agents, which would altogether have been more than the number of people that were ultimately charged in the alleged plot. Okay, so why did the entrapment defense actually work here? Like, what was different about this case? Yeah, I put that question to Ramzi Qasim. He's a law professor at the City University of New York, where he directs something called the CLEAR Project. 
He says the only real difference he saw was in the identity of the defendants and how the case was presented to the public. This was a case involving white male defendants. It was presented as a so-called domestic terrorism case, whereas in the run of post-9-11 cases, those cases have involved black and or brown, but in any event, Muslim-identified defendants. And the majority of those cases were presented as international terrorism because they were otherized in a number of ways. I think the fact finders in those cases were far less likely to be receptive of the entrapment defense. That is so interesting and kind of disturbing. I mean, this loss for the government on this case, what do you think it means moving forward? Well, Elsa, we're in a climate now where more Americans hold anti-government views or at least a mistrust of the government. And so as we consider that more counterterrorism cases will have white defendants who espouse those views, we have to acknowledge that more jurors may identify with them to some extent. So prosecutors really will need to convince jurors that the targets were being investigated for criminal activity rather than their political beliefs. There's also this risk that government losses in a case like this can inspire future violent extremism. That is NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you, Odette. Thank you. Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We gotta have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. The U.S. Department of Justice is seeking help from the courts to obtain documents pertaining to and visits to Georgia Department of Corrections. Now, a petition was filed back on March 28th in the U.S. District Court right here in Atlanta. The DOJ wants to investigate the crimes, including murders, that have taken place inside Georgia's prisons. Now, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, since the beginning of 2020, at least 53 Georgian inmates have been homicide victims. Also, according to the AJC, that is more than double the total of 21 for 2018 and 2019. On March 20th of 2020, Carrington Fry was stabbed by another inmate and died inside Macon State Prison. Now, back on October 21st of 2021, Jennifer Bradley and I had a conversation about her son, Carrington. So, Carrington, uh, we moved here 10 years ago from Arkansas. We didn't have any family here. Um, Moved Carrington away from his, you know, dad, and that was really hard on him, the transition. Uh, he was a football star, Rose. He uh, was a basketball star. Excelled in pretty much everything he did. Scored really higher than national standards on standardized testing. Um, very loving kid. Grew up in a loving home. Made some, you know, unfavorable choices in his life. And that's kind of what landed him in the Georgia Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. But overall, a, a good kid. Now, for Jennifer Bradley, there's still a lot of unanswered questions surrounding Carrington's death, and she joins me now in the studio. Ms. Bradley, welcome back. Good to see you. Thank you, Ms. Rose. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's back up a little bit for our listeners, not for me with this story, because I do think it's important. Carrington was serving time for his involvement in, in an altercation with another group of young boys. Now, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and other outlets reported that those group of boys were gangs, but Carrington was not involved in a gang, but he was with this group of boys that had some type of something with this with this gang. Yes, ma'am. Not to my knowledge that he was involved in a gang. Those group of boys, that actually started, as silly as it sounds, they were rapping. Carrington was in his rap group. They were in his rap group. Somebody says something, things kind of spiraled out of control had been in several altercations with those group of boys at the time um, that Carrington committed the crime that landed him in prison. It wasn't a random act of violence, actually fighting that day. Carrington went to the car 
and shot a gun from the car after the fight. Yeah, afterwards he realized that it was the wrong decision, but and we couldn't undo it. So he was given 20 years with his parole time. The person that was shot was shot in the foot. Or shot in the foot. foot. Nobody died. Nobody nearly died. Nor quality of life was altered. It was his first offense. Yes. And he was given 20 years with his parole time. Yes, ma'am. 20 years. Um, what was the time that he, he had to serve, though, before parole? So he served two years in the county jail before actually going to court. They told they said that he would be given eight, two off for his um, time served in the county jail and then for him to serve six. How old was Carrington when he was sentenced? He was 17? He was 17 when he was charged. Mm -hmm. But when he went to court, he was uh, right at 19. You recall the day that you saw that he was going to be going to serve his full time and the rest of the remainder of his full time in, in, in prison? That, you know, that time frame was one of the worst uh, periods of my life outside of having to bury him. Felt really ostracized, me and him both, not only by the judge and the prosecutor, but our attorney as well. You told me last time that you felt like he did not have adequate representation. I do. I feel like the attorney we had did not get to know him. He wasn't prepared. Was he it a public defender? No, it was not. Mm -hmm. I paid him my hard-earned money. Um, we felt kind of pushed into a plea deal. That was my next question. Carrington took a plea deal. He never went to trial. He never went to trial. Did you want him to go to trial? <sighs> yes and no. I wanted him to go to trial, but in the event that he told us that this is the best he's going to get, he's going to go away for a long time if we don't take the plea deal. The judge has said if you don't take the plea deal, uh, you're going to court within a week. He wasn't prepared. Um, so yes and no. We felt kind of bullied into that plea deal. And it was hard for me to make that decision because I wasn't making a decision for my life. I was making it for my young son. How many times did you visit him? He was at Macon State, correct? Macon State Prison. I visited him every time I got a chance. If I was off, uh, you know, I'm a single mother, so I have to work. So any weekend that I was off, I was at that prison. How was... How was Carrington coping? Overall, like I said, you know, many times before, overall Carrington was a strong kid, very strong. He was really careful not to show me worry for the sake of me, but there were often times when things were bubbling beneath his surface that I knew was bothering him. He never said anything? Yes, sometimes he did. Uh, he talked about being placed in a cell with a pro boxer and that kind of ending uh, bad, but not as bad as it could have been. Um, talked about hearing uh, somebody scream one time and later finding out that the kid had been raped. He talked about being so cold one winter, and this was actually the winter that he was, uh, right before he was killed, it was so cold he said he had to run his hot water all night and get warm from the steam. He talked about absent and delayed medical calls, uh, needing antibiotics, feeling weak. Uh. Did he have any altercations in prison? He did. He had some altercations. Not many, but he did have some altercations. And I think that's probably inevitable when you're young, you know, you're around so many uh, older people, mm -hmm. a lot more crimes. 
trying to establish yourself and not be viewed as this weak kid that you can be taken advantage of. He did take advantage of some some courses, some educational courses that were offered to him? He did. He took anger management uh, and some other courses. He also got his uh, GED in prison and graduated salutatorian of his class. You talked to him about that, too. Yes. I remember you telling me. Yes, very smart kid, wasn't surprised. Uh, we were invited to the graduation, and there was another kid who won valedictorian. But I know my child, I knew that he could have done it. Like, what happened? Yeah. He said, well, I purposely didn't finish a test. I don't want to be up there speaking in front of those people. Very smart kid, always smart. Ms. Bradley, did you all try to seek some other type of legal recourse and either having the sentence uh, reduced or once that was given... Once that sentence was handed, was that it for you all? Did you try to get any other legal recourse here? Yes, ma'am, I did. I spoke to two other attorneys. Um, one I actually went into the office and consulted with, and he said that uh, we would have to go before that same judge. He said because it gives them a chance to rewrite the wrong. He's like, but he would have to agree that it was wrong. He says so kind of, you know, honestly speaking, it's hard to sometimes overturn that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, What about the other young men that were involved in that altercation? Were they found guilty of anything? Were they charged? Were they found guilty? Carrington counter-pressed charges, and they went to jail for a little time, but not long. They had really, really long rap sheets, which surprised me. Uh, They wanted to drop the charges, though, but our attorney said the prosecutor wouldn't allow it. The, the, the young men in the other group didn't want any charges. And no. that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a code. It's kind of a street code. And let's be really clear that, you know, we've handled it supposedly. Right. They wanted to drop the charges. And I want to be very clear. This was Carrington's only offense. As an adult. Yes. Okay. But he had little misdemeanors where he got into a fight when he was like 15 or 16. But that didn't come into play. Sure. Let me add that. March 20th of 2020, Jennifer. Yes. Can you take me through that day? Yes. So, um, Carrington was just about to get out of prison a few months. In a few months. Um, so his sentence was, he, cause, and I think listeners probably wonder, when, what year did he go in? He went into prison around 2019 but he was arrested in 2017 okay so he was going to be released early well they told no that was like six and a half they said for him to serve six okay and his tentative parole month was 2021 but the parole department uh written to me and my older son that he had earned 10 credits where he would get 30 days off for each credit. So we took 10 months off. And when we took the 10 months off, that placed his parole the summer of 2020. The summer. Yes. Um, And March 20th was that day earlier was a typical day. You know, COVID has started to descend. Mm -hmm. Um, Had talked to Carrington maybe a week and a half prior to that. Typically talk every day. And, uh, you talked to him every day? Every day, two and three times a day. So it was alarming that I hadn't heard from him. Uh, and I called the prison, and she was saying something like he didn't want to come out of isolation. I later found out that was a lie, that they had a murder. That's why I hadn't heard from him. They locked down the prison. 
that week prior to Carrington being killed because mm-hmm. there was a murder. So March 20th, I'm laying in my bed. It was around 9.04 uh, p.m. I received a call from one of my nieces who's in Atlanta. And I hit reject because I was on the phone with somebody else. And then she called right back. So I'm like, you know, let me take this. She's calling back. So when I switched over, her voice was breaking and she said, I got a call from Carrington's friend. He's on the other end. He got something to tell you. I immediately started screaming, where's my son? Because nobody should be calling me from the prison unless it's him. So I knew something was wrong. My spirit was really disturbed. So that's when he said, Miss Bradley, Sip got stabbed. And Sip is Carrington's nickname? Yes, that's Carrington's nickname all his life. He said, uh, call up to the prison and check on your son. They said he was dead. So another inmate had contacted a family member, and that family member called you. But you hadn't heard anything from prison officials. I hadn't heard anything from the prison officials. And I finally made it to my older son's room, and he was trying to tell me that maybe it was a rumor. But I knew, as a mother, I knew that I would never see my son again. So I actually dialed the prison. They stalled, they put me on hold, told me to call back. I called back again, and then they were stalling. She was like, who told you that? You know, where did you find she that information? Being she being the, um, the person who answered the phone at the prison. I guess the secretary or whoever that mm-hmm. was. Uh, so they put me on hold, and then finally the warden got on, and he said, I'm sorry, you know, I hate to make these types of uh, calls. And I said, where's my son? He said, he's at the morgue. What time was this? This was around 9.27, 9.30. And we should note for our listeners, we have tried to contact Georgia Department of Corrections. Even the first time you were on this program, we did not hear back from them. We still continue to not seek correspondence so or get correspondence from them. So I just wanted to put that out there. So the warden told you that he was at the morgue. Did he go into any details about anything else? He said he could not go into any details because there was a pending investigation. Because um, I asked him, like, what had happened. He said he couldn't tell me. I asked him about Carrington's personal belongings. I even mentioned that I could drive there you know, to get him. I asked, was he at a hospital? You know, he said he couldn't tell me anything. He did say that his personal belongings were being held for investigative purposes. And I said, well, what about the belongings in his cell? I understand that maybe what was on his person would be held. And he said, everything's being held. So that's what he said. And he didn't give me any further information. And that was the conversation for the next few months. And then all of a sudden, maybe three or four months down the line, it went from, we can no longer locate your son's personal belongings. Since our last conversation, there has been, I guess, an indictment of the, the inmate that stabbed Carrington. Do we know what the circumstances regarding that? Do there, there has been an indictment. Um, what I was told, it was over some petty thievery that the other guy was doing. And Carrington made a peace offering or something for him to remove himself from the dorm. At that point, I guess he left and uh, supposedly had left, but he never left. He came back with a knife. The other inmate? Yes. And stabbed him? Mm -hmm. And stabbed him. And they said Carrington was trying to get away 
running for his life. Um, but he didn't stand a chance that day from what I've been told from certain staff members because of the series of events that took place in the prison that was preventable. What do you mean? Well, uh, they were so short-staffed. There was one uh, correctional officer overseeing 188 inmates. On this particular shift? On this particular shift of two dorms. You were told that by staff? Staff and inmates. And inmates. One uh, for 188? Yes, one female officer. She was in a booth. She never stepped out of her booth. Rather, she panicked. Rather, she felt outnumbered. I don't know. She never stepped out of her booth uh, to do CPR or anything. The other inmate uh, that was with him talked her into allowing him to go to go into the sally port, which is a space in between two doors. Mm-hmm. Um, he laid back there struggling for 30, 40 minutes. Um, staff did not get there in time. Staff member, and I can't go into that aspect of it for legal reasons, but staff member called me and told me why. It took them so long to get to him. And she said that she don't know the exact time, but she said it was an extended period of time. She said to Ms. Bradley, I'd never reach out to people. She said, but in with him, the type of person that he was, the circumstances, I felt compelled to tell you that he was doomed. Those were exact words. He was doomed to die that day with a series of preventable events. She said they were preventable. She said, but it just so happened on the, that day that he died on that day. When did you see Carrington's body again? Was it when you were preparing for his funeral? It was when I had him flown back from um, Georgia here because I couldn't see him that day. I wanted to see him with the, you know, the coroner and all of that, but they wouldn't allow me. His body went to the GBI, and they said they had to do a double autopsy on him. He bled to death? I don't know. I haven't received this autopsy report. I've written him numerous times. They said that they can't release that until after the trial has been done and the patient has been convicted or not convicted, whatever, you know, the outcome of the trial. You also, you told us you wrote to Governor Brian Kemp for help? I've written to Governor Brian Kemp twice, um, explaining to him about the situation, ways to prevent this from happening again. I've you know, wrote him about not receiving Carrington's belongings. I've never received any type of response from his office. So it doesn't surprise you when the Department of Justice is trying to get information and because they're doing an investigation into Georgia's correctional facilities for homicides. It just doesn't surprise you that, that they are, through their allegations, are being met with resistance. It, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me, being that, you know, you won't have a conversation, at least a conversation with a grieving mother whose son has lost his life in one of your prisons. But I must admit that it's disheartening. They're trying to come in and they're trying to come up with ways to prevent this from happening, to revamp this system, and you're stopping them from doing so? Like, what benefit or what reason can you give to justify stopping them from going in there? You are seeking some type of, I don't know what you can share, but you are seeking some type of legal yes, ma'am. action? I am. What do you want? I want them to produce, I want to see some changes made in the prison system. 
there's no way that I should have received that call that night from another inmate or at all. These are places, prisons are places that we send people to be reformed and rehabilitated. There's no restitution or rehabilitation in that type of environment. They may, you may as well let, turn them loose and put them out on the street. There's no justice in that. Were you able to get any of Carrington's belongings at all? No, I did call the, I found out what um, college went to the school, to the prison and, and delivered the education to them and I got a copy there, but I never got the original. And I know it's different because I looked at his picture and compared it. It's a, it's you just want the copy. original because that, that's the one he held. That's the one he held. That's the one he had with him. You have a, a necklace of his as well. Two necklaces. Uh, they were on him when he was murdered. The funeral home gave me that, and one of them still ha is stained with his blood. I won't ever wash it away. Call it weird or whatever, but it's all I have of him. Have you worked with, I know we spoke with, I believe, someone for the Southern Center for Human Rights. I think we had a guest on. But have you been working with any groups or advocacy groups? Um, have you been contacted by any other inmates about the conditions? Yes, I'm constantly in contact uh, with other inmates. I have been working with other advocacy groups as well. I still deal with the Southern Center. They've been great. Um, National Incarceration Association and Kate Bosch are great. Also, uh, and Kate has been a guest on this program before yes Tasha Mills who's doing a documentary about the prison system uh, Don Arthur and so other people uh, Portia Miller I think she's an advocate too mm -hmm. so other people that I've kind of surrounded myself with on this journey this journey that you've been talking about and we've been talking with you for since 2020 since 2021 I guess yes. How have you and your family been trying to hold up with all of this? Okay, overall. We have moments every day. My oldest son has nightmares. He's recently started seeing a psychiatrist. Um, a lot of depressive days for him. You know, as a mother, uh, to bear one of your child children is the worst thing that you possibly can go through. But I also have other children who need me. Carrington need me to be his voice. If he was here, he'd tell you that I, I would be doing just what I'm doing. So that's what keeps me going, Miss Rose. Being able to talk about him, amplify his voice through me, that's really what, that's really what keeps me going. Jennifer Bradley, the mother of Carrington Fry. The streets of Grand Rapids filled with people once again last night, calling out for justice. A week ago Monday, 26-year-old Patrick Leoya was killed by a Grand Rapids police officer during a traffic stop. GRPD has agreed to release nine videos documenting the shooting today, and the city is simultaneously in a state of mourning, questioning, and anger. But at the end of the day, it did not take a black man being executed in our streets in broad daylight 
for the city commission to notice that something is wrong. We do want to warn folks that we're going to be discussing some extremely difficult moments at the end of Patrick Leoya's life. It will be difficult to hear. Michigan Radio's Dustin Dwyer is following this developing story, and he joins us now. Hi, Dustin. Hey, April. Who was Patrick Leoya? Um, he was the son of uh, Congolese refugees who came to, to West Michigan, uh, really fleeing violence in their in their home country, like many refugees in West Michigan. West Michigan is home to, to refugees from, from many different countries, but he was part of a, a, the Congolese community. His parents lived in Lansing. He lived in, in Grand Rapids. Yeah. What was the incident that brought Patrick in contact with police last week? We really still don't know a lot about the incident. We know that um, Grand Rapids police has said that it was uh, purportedly a traffic stop, um, that the city has said that Patrick Leoya got out of his car, and that at some point he started running away from the police officer. The police officer who was there was um, a police officer who was on his own or on on their own, um, who did not have a partner with them. Uh, The police officer chased Patrick Leoya. At some point there was some type of struggle, and then... Uh, a gun went off. Uh, Patrick Leary was shot. Now, as I mentioned, GRPD is is releasing a reported nine videos, all footage of the incident. Um, I, I feel I feel like just a just a few details, alleged details, have been reported. I mean, it really sounds like the content is going to be truly truly terrible. Do you have any sense of what these videos are going to show? Um, I have a sense of how the city has been preparing to show it. Uh, It's been nine days since he was shot and killed. We've seen in other cities when there was um, a shooting involving a police officer that the the video has gone out rapidly. Um, In this case, the Kent County prosecutor had made a statement asking that the video not be shown until the investigation was complete. The city held for a while, but, um, but, but ultimately decided to release Um, I can tell you that before um, the city agreed to release the video, barricades were put up outside Grand Rapids Police Department headquarters. I can tell you that one of the city commissioners at last night's meeting uh, called this uh, the darkest day in the city's history. Uh, I can tell you that uh, Patrick Leoya's parents uh, say they were able to see the video uh, at police uh, when they visited the police department. And what they've described is a video where Patrick Luyoy is face down. The police officer is kneeling on his back and shoots him in the back of the head. Um, That is what I'm expecting to see in this video. The city has not pushed back at all on the parents saying that that's what's in the video. Hmm. We understand that Patrick Leoya's father, uh, through interpreters, has been has been talking to the media. Can you share anything else about what the Leoya family has had to say right now about their son's death? Um, they say that they're, you know, grieving, obviously, that they're shocked that um, particularly as refugees who came to America um, seeking a life where their children could be safe. This is especially hurtful. It's especially hurtful for the entire Congolese community. Um, and they've asked for the release of these tapes. They've been calling for it for, you know, since last week. They've asked for the officer's name to be released. They've asked for, you know, justice to be done in this case. And um, at last night's city commission meeting in Grand Rapids, um, while many, many citizens came out and 
and gave public comment for more than three hours, um, really blaming the city commission for not reining in GRPD. At the end, the commissioners all said they really want justice to be done. And one of the reasons that um, this process has taken so long is because they, the city attorney said they, they cross all their T's and dot all their I's so that what should happen here happens. As I mentioned, uh, there were protests last night, but and I want to talk about that, but maybe first uh, just one more question about the city commission. Was oversight of police on the table or was this strictly a function of the public comment uh, just really overwhelming the meeting? Yeah, the meeting had nothing to do with this. It was really like um, what was on the agenda for the day was just some, you know, there was some stuff about CDGB spending and a couple other things. It was really an uneventful meeting. It only lasted 20 or 30 minutes, and then there was just this outpouring of public comment. So, you know, police oversight continues to be on the agenda at large for the city, a big open question. It's been talked about for years, but last night's meeting wasn't about that. It was, um, at least officially from the agenda perspective, it became about that because of Patrick. Yeah. The chant that protesters were using uh, last night was, we told you so. We saw this in many social media videos. For those who don't live in Grand Rapids, what did the protesters mean by that? April, what they mean is that this has been going on for years, that people in Grand Rapids have been saying the same thing for years. Um, They have asked for the city to do something about police officers pulling their guns on people in the city who often turn out to be unarmed people. It happened in 2015. 15, 2016, when they, uh, excuse me, 2017, when they um, handcuffed Honesty Hodges. It happened when they um, pointed their weapons at a group of boys who were leaving um, the, the Croc Center after playing basketball. It has happened so many times that police officers have pointed their guns at either children or people who were just, it was just a case of missing uh, a mistaken identity. And that you know, if you're black in Grand Rapids, it's, it's chances are you've had a police encounter like this. I've witnessed a police encounter like this where the police pulled their weapons on someone. It is sort of a standard procedure for this police department, maybe other police departments, that when they conduct certain types of stops, they pull out their weapons and they point it at the person. But so often they get the wrong person. And so this happens all the time. And people have been talking about it for years. And it continues to happen. Um, a lot of the protesters warned that something like this was bound to happen in the city of Grand Rapids. Something like this was going to happen in the city of Grand Rapids. So when they say, we told you so, it's because they literally said someone is going to die. They've said it at commission meetings. I understand Commissioner Nathaniel Moody uh, had had an answer for that chant at the commission meeting last night. What did he say? Uh, Nathaniel Moody apologized to the protesters, and it was a specific apology to the group of protesters who's been around for the past two years since the death of George Floyd, who's really been pushing. They, they called for defunding the police completely, abolishing police. Many of them called for abolishing the police. Nathaniel Moody is a commissioner who represents the city's southeast side. He's a black commissioner, one of few black commissioners, but he said he was absolutely against the idea. He supported Grand Rapids police, and, and last year he said in a quote during a commission meeting, Um, I understand you're upset about the killing of George Floyd, but that was one police officer in Minneapolis. That is not Grand Rapids. Uh, Last night, someone played that clip back for him during public comment, played it over the microphone. And at the end of the meeting, he apologized. I was elected to listen and to hear you. 
and I ended up scolding you. I'm sorry for that. I am sorry that this tragedy has taken place in our city. I am saddened and heartbroken for Patrick's family and for Patrick's life. I ask that you would give us and me another chance and let us do this thing right. Dustin, when you think about the crowd that was marching last night, how would you describe it? Was it was it a lot of the people who we have seen uh, out before? It, it feels like we were just talking about the the really large groups that that came to the streets in Grand Rapids for Black Lives Matter protests in winter 2020. Did you see some faces you knew? Yeah, the the group that has really taken up um, the protests since really since the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, a lot of those same people were leading the group um, Tuesday night, and many of them are the core people who've been around for the past two years. I will say that that um, Tuesday night in Grand Rapids, uh, I've seen bigger crowds, and I, I know there's been more people who have marched in the past, um, and it's possible that we will see bigger crowds. One thing that um, you know is happening today is that it's raining in Grand Rapids, so I think there's a chance that you won't see a whole lot tonight, but but possibly, I'm, I, we're certainly the city is certainly preparing for there to be much larger demonstrations. Yeah, we've talked before about this generational moment in Grand Rapids, and maybe especially for its Black community, as the city reckons with all kinds of disparities, but certainly police use of force. I have two questions for you about this. First of all, do you think that back in 2020? when people were out protesting for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, do you think connections were made or coalitions were built that might give advocates a stronger a stronger voice and possibly a stronger position with the city right now? You know, that's an interesting question. It certainly is generational. The, you know, I think you see this in a lot of cities. There are certain people who get engaged in, in local activism, and then they by being engaged, they, they start the process of, you know, they run for office. You know, the people who sit on city commission right now in Grand Rapids and in many cities are the people who were most engaged 10 years ago. They were the young people from 10 years ago who decided they wanted to do something. And then it comes to a point where a new generation comes up and says, you're not doing it right. We want to, we want to do something. Now this new generation, I haven't seen any of them, um, decide to run for city commission. And they've called for lots of things that the current city commission says, that um, it's just too too much to do right now, like defunding the police, completely abolishing the police department. That is not something that this city commission or most city commissions have, have been willing to agree to. But this coalition of protesters has continued to ask for it now for more than a year. And I will say that after last night's meeting, after certainly the events of this week, um, the political leadership, I think, in this city is willing to maybe consider things that they they hadn't considered before. And what that means in terms of policy, I don't really know, but I, there was certainly a change in tone, and this feels like a different moment. Michigan Radio's Dustin Dwyer. Dustin, thank you so much for all your work. Thank you. No place on earth do I love more sincerely than old Virginia, the state where I was born. Carry me back We're back now with a local election official out of a job after racist remarks made on Facebook. It's a story our Regina Mobley broke on Friday. 
Electoral Board Chair David Dietrich formally resigned from his position following the posts and our story on Friday. It's one that even got the attention of the governor. Ten on your side's Aisha Tolliver is following up tonight. Electoral Board Chair David Dietrich has resigned from his position. This after racist comments on social media believed to be written by Dietrich came to light last week. The disturbing comments posted to Facebook include the N-word in reference to the Secretary of Defense and public lynchings. Governor Youngkin demanded Dietrich's resignation in a tweet Saturday afternoon, which read in part, As governor, I serve all Virginians. I won't accept racism in our Commonwealth or our party. A spokesperson from the governor's office later confirmed that Dietrich had agreed to resign following Youngkin's demand. Hampton GOP chairman Philip Siff, who called for Dietrich's resignation on Wednesday, says he's relieved. It's just not acceptable behavior for somebody that's going to be in that type of position. So I'm glad the governor did it, and I wish that uh, Mr. Dietrich had made the decision earlier. The governor's tweet came less than a day after Ten On Your Side reported about the Hampton GOP calling upon the appointing authority for all electoral board members to remove Dietrich. Siff says the circuit court must receive his resignation in writing. Once that happens, they plan on submitting a new list of names of people who could replace Dietrich on the board. As of late Saturday evening, there has been no response to Wavy TV from the governor's office about whether there's a document that establishes the reported resignation. Everybody's entitled to their First Amendment rights to speak, but, you know, words have consequences, and this does not represent us as a party. That's why we asked the court to remove him when he wouldn't resign, because had we known he did this, he made these statements, we would not have put him up in the first place. Dietrich has not responded to two emails sent by Wavy TV. I'm Aisha Tolliver, to on your side. All right, Corey, thank you so much. Tonight, SLED says 48-year-old Edward Olson has been arrested on charges of stalking and assault or intimidation due to political opinion. After SLED's announcement, Columbia attorney and CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers sent out a statement thanking SLED for the arrest as Sellers says he was the victim. Incident reports from SLED say Olson sent approximately 65 messages through Instagram from February to March. The report says the messages contained racial slurs, reference to killing of black people, and stated Olson was armed. In his statement, Seller says this wasn't just about him, that he has a wife and children, and he takes any threat against them very seriously. He added that his family shouldn't be subjected to threats and intimidation like this, saying this is a crime, pure and simple. Olson was arrested on Friday. He will be prosecuted by the Fifth Circuit Solicitor's Office. I do wish you wouldn't keep talking to them about all that lynching stuff. What? There'll be time enough for them to learn about horrible things when they're older. Right now, they're safe. You are absolutely wrong. If you are determined to have them grow up in this damn country, the sooner they find out what they are up against, the better. But they're happy. Why ruin that? I want them to stay happy. Irene, what is the use in keeping things from them? Hmm? We tried to keep them from hearing the word nigger. Don't use those and words in my house. They found out the hard You way. are not to talk about the race problem, Brian. I won't have it. It is my house, too, and I tell you, they need to know these they things. They don't! They do not! I don't understand. 
how someone as intelligent as you can be so stupid. We're not going to actually show this video just because of the disturbing nature and content that is within it. But uh, Canton police are telling Seven Action News that there are there is an open investigation into this video. And once that investigation is closed, it will be sent over to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office for possible charges. Many parents at the Plymouth Canton High School are upset, and rightfully so, after a disturbing and racist video started to make the rounds online. I was disgusted. I was angry. It's horrible, you know. It makes me feel like my daughter is not safe going to school. Parents speaking to 7 Action News reporter Brett Cast. They did not want to show their faces in fear of pushback against their children. The video showed a white high school student filming himself threatening to lynch, curb stomp, and kill black students. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean. We're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, um, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, um, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. The video showed a white high school student filming himself threatening to lynch, curb stomp, and kill black students using the N-word multiple times. It created just a pain in my heart that this is what my child as a teenager is experiencing at a place where she's supposed to be learning and growing. The parents also say racism at Plymouth Canton schools is nothing new. In a statement, the district said, quote, while this video has recently surfaced amongst our student body, it was thoroughly investigated when it was brought to our attention and addressed with the students involved. We do not condone or tolerate acts of this nature. The district admitted this was not the first incident of racial discrimination this year and that they can't disclose specifics on the disciplinary action towards the student. Parents want a clarification on the punishment. We've gotten responses from the school that it's being handled, but we don't know how it's being handled. And when it's something this serious, um, I'm, I'm expecting something more than we're handling it and don't worry about it. And the school is asking students and parents if there is any racist uh, discrimination or threatening behavior to report it. There are also counseling services available here at the school. Reporting in Canton this morning, I'm Peter Maxwell, 7 Action News. Yeah, you can clearly understand the concern of the parents given this type of language and violence, and they certainly want to know more. That's something that every parent can understand. Peter Maxwell, live for us this morning in Canton. Thank you, Peter. He knows that I like pork and white women, but he still allows me to be here with him. Now, I can give up pork, but them white women, goddammit, how you deal with it, boy? Clearly a toxic relationship, um, and had their ups and downs, and unfortunately it culminated with, um, with his death. 
Now to a CBS4 exclusive in that deadly stabbing at a luxury condo in Edgewater. A woman stabbed her boyfriend to death. Now her lawyer is speaking only to CBS4. He says his client should not be charged. CBS4's Trish Christakis has her side of the story from Edgewater. This was not a crime. Uh, Courtney's innocent. She acted in self-defense. Um, and there should be no charges filed in this case. And we're confident that when the state attorney conducts their final review along with the city of Miami Police Department that they'll find that there's, there's no case here. A few days ago, Aboom Sully's family says that he was a soft-spoken man and said the idea that this was warranted is unthinkable. We have no cause to believe that this was a case of self-defense. Um, Toby was raised with a raised by a very strong family with strong morals, strong values. Um, he does not come from that. The idea that this was somehow warranted um, is unthinkable. Prieto says Clenny kicked Aboom Selly out of this apartment she was renting in Edgewater a week prior to Aboom Selly's death because of domestic abuse allegations. These allegations Clenny has against Aboom Selly, her lawyer says, led to his death. Miami PD says they were called to this Edgewater condo to investigate a domestic violence call when they found Aboom Selly suffering from a knife wound. Right now, no one has been arrested as it is an open investigation. Prado says the two have been together for about two years and their relationship was complicated. It was clearly a toxic relationship. Um, and had their ups and downs, and unfortunately, it culminated with um, with his death. Prado says Clenny is actively seeking professional help to process the trauma experienced from the night of the stabbing. The detectives and myself thought it was best to have her Baker acted that evening, um, and we've had an open line of communication, and uh, we've offered to uh, to sit down with them and provide any additional assistance that they may want uh, to close their investigation. The attorney representing Aboom Sally's family says that they had a successful meeting with the state attorney's office. All they're looking for is justice. We know the suspect uh, that was involved in this incident has not been arrested. Uh, I'm confident having had a meeting with the state attorney's office uh, that uh, they were very attentive. They answered all the necessary questions. Trish Christakis, CBS 4 News. Basically, there are two types of black people, and black people are actually more racist because they hate the other type of black people. See, every time the one type wants to have a good time, then the other type comes in and makes a real mess. I'm, okay, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. He's he, he's ruined. He's butchering it. I, I'm. Could you just let me? Every time, every time, black people want to have a good time, some ignorant ass. Oh, I can't care my kids. always want credit for something they supposed to do. Tape the Bullock County Jailer who is up for re-election using racial slurs and making comments about his former command staff and others. And a story you'll see only on WDRB. We uncover the tape and who recorded it. Of course, and I'm saying this like you all, I don't say this in public. See, my granddaughter's married to a and he is a and there's a thing, there's a difference between the black guy and the and this Bullitt County Jailer Paul Watkins not holding back. Oh, okay, I'm not going to tell you that I've been a saint. An over hour long conversation full of cussing and racial slurs. This recording is from last month. 
This is Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022. A conversation between Paul Watkins and myself, Dave Greenwell. It was just entered as evidence in a whistleblower lawsuit from last summer. And was all recorded by former Bullock County Sheriff Dave Greenwell, who Watkins fired from the jail. When I got ready to leave is the only time you see more video. And when I, I pulled it out of my pocket to see the time and I tried to scan it. What time is it anyway? Greenwell was acquitted of several charges in 2018, including obstructing an investigation, helping former Bullock County Special Deputy Chris Mattingly's drug business. Greenwell is now running for sheriff again and says Watkins called this meeting to try to get his support. Paul, there's no, you don't even, you don't even need me. You know what I'm saying? You really don't need me. What do you want to come out of all of this? I'd like to see a lot of people that were hurt by him over the years. That was, uh, they were very good people. And again, it was, it was black and white people, and they certainly didn't deserve what they got. Greenwell telling WDRB he wants the public to hear what was said. Do you think he's racist? Oh, I know he's racist. I mean, it's, it's, the tape speaks for itself. At one point, Watkins talks about the whistleblower lawsuit against him. Here's Reeser, and it's black. I, they, everything they've said about me is a f***ing lie. His former command staff, Carl Reeser and Grace Smith, allege racism and inmate mistreatment at the Bullock County Jail before they left their jobs in 2019. Reeser and that f***ing black I hired her to do the booking. Watkins also mentioned a meeting between Reeser and Bullock County Judge Executive Jerry Summers. No, I'll never understand this. He had private meetings with Jerry Summers in closed doors. Yes, and it was mainly about me and about hiring you at Grace. See, she had all these years of experience. She didn't know about I knew more about booking than she did, and I've never been back there. Watkins became jailer in January 2019, and since then, several employees have contacted WDRB complaining of a hostile, unprofessional, and sexist working environment at the jail. Now what about this chick here? She denied. I come in here for a, an examination, girl. Jail surveillance video from April 2019 is part of another lawsuit involving former employee Sherry Thompson that's now been settled. Well, I'm not the greatest mother in the world. I can't go off in a drop of a hat. But like I said, just like Sherry Thompson. Some might question why you came forward with the tape. You were fired from him, so is there any hard feelings because of that? Hard feelings. They retaliated through Paul, and Paul was in such trouble already in so many different directions. He's just the kind of person that was willing to obey their request uh, to get rid of me because they knew that if I'm sheriff, I'm going to be the same sheriff I was and proud of it. Whatever the case is, Dave, look here. I, I'm telling you, I give you my apology. I, I have made that. 
I've made some bad mistakes. You were one of them whenever I, I did. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I mean, from the bottom of my heart. Reeser, if I walked out this door and he's standing out there right now, if I could get to my car, I'd shoot him between the eyes. I swear to God, I would. Judge Executive Jerry Summers says Bullock County leaders did not pressure Watkins to fire Greenwell. Summers calls Watkins' comments and racial slurs unexcusable and says Watkins should resign. This is what Watkins says about diversity in the jail under his leadership. I got more black employees now than we ever had. Every one of them would go to bat for me today. I, I, I guarantee you would. On the recording, Watkins even mentioned WDRB. Reefers are saying here, and I'm prejudiced. You know why I'm prejudiced? That black has heard me say that I don't like Chinese people. Well, see, Valerie Chin is Chinese. This is why they're saying this. Carol Pettit, Watkins' attorney, released a statement saying a private conversation between colleagues has been released that was secretly recorded while jailer Paul Watkins was enduring a period of significant personal stress, and it contains disparaging comments. These inappropriate comments in no way reflect how jailer Watkins considers the individuals mentioned, and he sincerely regrets the descriptions and comments used. I've got seven motherfuckers running against me. To me, it's like... Um, wasn't going to run, I told y'all that, but then all this happened. The clock is now ticking for this election season. And I really wanted to say, you, Jerry Summers. I do. I'm so mad I can't stand it. And some of the other ones, too. The primary is on May 17th. Nothing he said was a surprise. It was anticipated. That's why I took the tape with me. On WDRV.com, Travis Ragsdale outlines what else Watkins said on that tape and other allegations against him. For generalities, I generally say that if you want ultimate expression of white supremacy and the white supremacist mentality, and you want to put it in the form of one person that I would name, and that's something I very seldom do, it would be Jeffrey Dunn. Hmm. He's the ultimate expression of white supremacy. Everything that he was doing, working in a chocolate factory, the whole nine yards, storing black male bodies in canisters of wine and alcohol and whatnot, and got them in the refrigerator. And cannibalism, all of that and calm, very methodical. Even when questioned by the law enforcement officers, very calm. Hannibal Lecter. So he's just as calm as he can be. Very methodical, very meticulous. Went to work on time. Excellent worker. Working in a chocolate factory. Looking at chocolate being churned all day. Then out there trying to churn chocolate at night. Mm. The ultimate expression. Rolling Empire. Black death associated. Black. Anti-sex with non-white people associated ultimately with death as being the ultimate. 
gather them up, befriend them to the extent that you're saying that, hey, I'm going to take you a black male and make you ultimately effeminate and then kill you. First chance I get. Frozen femurs in the freezer. Jeffrey Dumb. Former high-profile political donor Ed Buck has been sentenced to 30 years in prison for drug and sex crimes that led to the death of two men. After years of fighting for Buck's arrest, tonight the families feel they have some measure of justice. KKL9's Tom Waite is here now with, with um, the emotions and reactions from the families. Tom, that's right. Well, we, you know, we've been on this story for years, mm -hmm. and this is the culmination of a lot of investigation and a lot of advocacy on behalf of some activists. And Ed Buck once had power and influence, but he turned into a depraved predator, targeting young, poor, black gay men, dosing them, even injecting them. With meth to the point of death. Triumphant family members and friends of Ed Buck's victims left court after his sentencing. The former wealthy Democratic donor will spend 30 years in prison for supplying deadly doses of drugs to two men. I'm so happy and pleased that we could put this part behind us. Letitia Nixon is Jamel Moore's mother. 26-year-old Moore died of a meth overdose in Buck's apartment in July of 2017. No one wanted to touch this. This has been a long time coming, so um, we're very happy and I'm just... I'm ready to just put this behind me and go, you know, ahead with uh, healing because I, I haven't been able to heal, me nor my other kids. Buck supplied 55-year-old Timothy Dean with a fatal dose of meth in January of 2019. His family was also in court for the sentencing. No amount of time can bring my brother back, but um, I feel some kind of solace and some kind of relief for my family that he will be in prison for a very long time. The last person known to survive Buck's meth den was Dane Brown. His story helped detectives crack the case. He's destroyed families and he's destroyed lives. Buck's behavior sparked outrage, but his arrest didn't come until years after Moore's death and only after federal investigators took over the case. The 67-year-old, who donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Democratic politicians and causes, preyed on young, poor black men. Our David Goldstein tracked down and confronted Buck before his arrest. Can you answer the question, sir? Is it, is it a coincidence that two men have died in your apartment? Why are you walking backwards, sir? Jasmine Kanek, a political strategist and community activist, fought hard to make sure Buck was held accountable. She thanked prosecutors for their hard work. I believe that victims of crime matter and I'm happy that you do too. Buck spoke briefly before he was sentenced, claiming he loved his two victims. He apologized, but also claimed he did not cause their deaths. Clearly, the judge and jury disagreed. I'm Tom Waite. Juan, back to you. Tom, thank you. Let's hear Adam in Greenville, North Carolina, Republican line. Adam, what's your solution? Good morning. I have a, I have a solution to this gun violence. Most gun violence that happened in this country is from these big cities and they're and they're basically from most of it not all of it but they're from gang bangers and gang members and what i have been saying for years that i you know think would reduce the violence majorly is if all known and documented gang bangers were immediately sentenced to death 
then I believe that people would be too scared to go into the gang and it wouldn't be worth it to them and it would stop the gun violence immediately. Do you think that would uh, pass constitutional scrutiny? I don't think so, but I believe it would be uh, an immediate solution to it. Adam, are are you a gun owner? No, I am not. Thank you, sir. Well, I guess a lot of niggas do gang gang. And if you run trains, y'all in the same gang. Runaway slaves all on the chain gang. Bang, 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 bang. Today, Frank R. James has a court appearance on federal terrorism charges. He's the man accused of entering a crowded subway train car on Tuesday morning, setting off smoke grenades and opening fire with a gun. Ten people were hit by bullets, 13 others injured in the understandable panic. And Pierce Quill Lawrence joins us from New York. Quill, good morning. Good morning. What's known about Mr. James? He was born in New York. He's lived in many other places, including Philadelphia, Milwaukee. He's 62 years old. He's got a string of criminal charges against him in the 1990s, uh, but no felonies. Police say that if he'd had a felony, he wouldn't have been able to purchase the 9 millimeter handgun, which NYPD Chief of Detectives James Essig said he bought out of state. The gun used in this, a 9 millimeter Glock, which was recovered at this crime scene, was purchased by Mr. James in 2011 in Ohio. And that was the pistol that was discovered at the crime scene and was traced back to James. The, the rest is w- whatever we can figure out from these long, bigoted, ranting videos he posted online, uh, which include references to his own possible mental health issues and criticism of New York City Mayor Eric Adams and, and crime in the city. So we get a sense there that any motive here is going to be rather confused at best. But what other evidence might suggest what he intended? I mean, it seems like he was preparing for something big. The police found this rented van. They found gasoline, more smoke grenades, a hatchet. Um, And um, there was more ammunition abandoned at the scene, but also in in what appeared to be his former residences, there was ammunition and and weapons discovered. So it's it's not easy to say what else he might have been planning, whether this attack went as he planned it. It's unclear. In any event... He's going to do no more because he was apprehended yesterday. There have been so many stories about the chase for him and the way that the police try to track him down in the city. How, in fact, was he apprehended? Yeah, so he was named as a person of interest when they found uh, the keys for the rented van. Uh, and then the police flooded uh, traditional media as well as social media um, with pictures and information about him. And then they started scanning surveillance footage uh, uh, the police chief, uh, Kishan Sewell, said that they shrunk his world very quickly. They tracked him getting back onto a train um, and then going into Manhattan. However, it's just it's not clear that all of this necessarily mattered. What seems to have mattered were tip lines. Uh, several people in the public say they've called in, but police sources have told the Associated Press that uh, one of the people who called in was James himself. And he said he was in a McDonald's uh, in lower Manhattan. And that is indeed where police found him on a corner nearby. About 30 hours after the attack, uh, they took him in without incident. In other words, he seemed to be ready to to come in, according to this this report. Yeah, if if he did call call the tip line on himself uh, and said, come and get me, um, yes, he seemed to... have no other plan other than getting arrested. But this is all speculation. The subway is so central to New York City life. What's it like to be in the city now? Yeah, you know, it really is like the the 
the bloodstream of, of the city. I, I was on the subway um, on the day it happened, only a, a couple of hours later on the same route. Um, and, you know, New, York, New Yorkers are tough, uh, but they've been through a lot. There's already a lot of, uh, of COVID anxiety, people looking to see who's wearing a mask on the subway and who isn't. Um, and uh, after this, you know, people had to get back on the subway. He was still at large uh, Tuesday afternoon. So, you know, kids had to go back home on the subway. People had to get back on their, on their commute. So there's a lot of anxiety. Gun violence is up. Uh, last night, just a couple of hours after uh, James was arrested, there was a teenager grazed by a bullet outside one of Brooklyn's busiest subway hubs. Mm. Um, and there have been several other gun crimes committed in the time that it took to apprehend James. So Mayor Eric Adams was elected as a tough on crime Democrat. It, it, it's kind of hard to see, though, what he can do about someone buying a gun in a different state and bringing it to the city, planning uh, this sort of attack. NPR's Quill Lawrence is in New York City. Quill, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 16, 2022. So I have been told uh, this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have observations, questions, counter racist suggestions to offer. Uh, the number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate what a week say that frequently under the system of white supremacy but wow there were a number of really important things that happened we will try to make sense uh let's see before we get to folks who dialed in number one we should be here tomorrow uh, our monthly global sunday talk on racism irregular time 3 p.m eastern 2 p.m central 12 noon pacific uh, we should have our folks from different parts of the globe. We'll get our, I guess, monthly international COVID-19 check-in. Uh, we'll hear hear how they talked about the uh, subway shooting in New York City. How was that reported around the world? And some of the other major events, one-way tickets to Rwanda. That's being reported because they got too many so-called immigrants. The Ukraine-Russia situation. Lots of things to discuss. Global Sunday Talk. That'll be tomorrow uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, let's see. Next. One thing that I will say, I think it's been uh, one of the catchy new phrases that they've been using since all the talk about fake news and folks just getting out and lying and saying all types of things uh, in the so-called press media literacy. This here weekly broadcast, the compensatory call, uh, compensatory call in that we've had for over a decade now, I would say this right here, excellent illustration of practicing 
refining your skills, media literacy. What do I mean when I say media literacy? I mean being able from a counter racist perspective to use logic, accurate information, and sometimes being able to just reference fact check what they uh, call it. What is being reported? Is this accurate? Why are they reporting this? Are they reporting this to reveal truth about white supremacy racism? Are they reporting this to refine the system of white supremacy racism, to lie, to confuse us, to confound our understanding? What sort of terms are they using? Are they conditioning us to think that racism, white supremacy is just a problem in the U.S.? Or are they giving us accurate perspective that this is a global problem like we'll discuss tomorrow? Those types of things when you evaluate lots of different ways that you can be deceptive, not just telling me that two plus two is ten. You can be deceptive by using inaccurate words when we talk about racism, white supremacy, lots of ways. And even by what you omit, sometimes it's not what you say, it's what you don't say. That is the deception. So I think we have more than a decade of demonstrating media literacy because that's generally what we do just listen to these reports and then evaluate what was heard do we think this is accurate do we think this is true do we think they practiced racism white supremacy and how this information was broadcast reported compensatory counter racist media literacy right here at the cows long running way before they even had that as a term next uh, let's see they had the report on reparations in California. Again, we had the white guest on the program earlier this year where he was talking about they may have used some of his research. In fact, the committee uh, in making their decisions about so-called reparations in California. Uh, they didn't say when they were speaking with some of the victims, they said that reparations black people would move to California and try to set up and do well for themselves and then the body politic would come in and mess that up and obstruct their efforts I don't know what you're talking about when you say the body politic do you mean individuals classified as white make it plain that's what I mean about media literacy there'll be lots of that obfuscating where we're not really talking about the perpetrators they don't do that when it's OJ Simpson they get real specific uh, they said they continued uh, and they had lots of obfuscating it's not racism white supremacy it's slavery and the vestiges of slavery they love that word vestiges and legacy of slavery and all this nonsense not white people being dedicated committed to white supremacy racism uh, they said if we can enforce carry out this reparations package it will create a strong black middle class I have no idea what that is I can say definitively middle class that is in the word guide Neely Fuller Jr. you can look that up where he recommends not using that term I do not want to be a strong member of the black middle class whatever that means I want to be no longer a victim of white supremacy they say Oprah Winfrey Harpo if you will she is in the upper class billionaire she's still a victim of white supremacy racism this is not a financial solve this is not something where hey if we get a lot of black people with a lot of money that will solve the problem 
Not at all. Not even close. They even have data. You compare so-called black middle class to white middle class, it's no contest. I even think some of the data, the black middle class, are they even doing as well as the so-called white lower class? Next, uh, they said the environmental racism in Southern California, Barrio Logan, non-white people living there and unregulated. They have all kinds of toxins in the air and folks with all kinds of respiratory issues. What they talked about having uh, comorbidities for COVID-19. They've been saying that for two plus years now. Uh, They had one of the victims, she said, living there made her not want a child that right there is genocide we talked about that before there are a lot of different parameters and how people define it but when you can put people in an environment where they are unwilling unable to procreate genocide not to mention we talked about that in the book in or a terrible thing to waste that can have environmental racism and all that pollution can impact the quality of your sperm of your eggs and your child's health Judith Finlayson you are what your grandparents ate talked about all of that very important white people are not ignorant about that uh, let's see next went a man the segment where they talked about the black state of the union with the former mayor of New Orleans cancer alley in Louisiana that's another site where they do a lot of poisoning of black people uh, former mayor of New Orleans, Mark Morial, giving the black state of the union interview that right there. Victims guaranteed qualified. Everybody can say what they want about racism. If you are classified as not white. That said, that interview is exactly why it is white guests only. No exceptions. Anthony Broadwater. If we can get Anthony Broadwater, that would be one. And O.J. Simpson. I guess those are two exceptions. O.J. Simpson, Anthony Broadwater. Uh, But I mean, he when they gave the statistics, number one, when they said that black people have made some alleged gains in health. Where did you get this information? That's what I mean. Media literacy, because I didn't hear. Where are you citing this from? What study? What book? Because Mark Morial, unless I'm confused, is not a medical professional. And I'm saying this with some emphasis because they just said me black males life expectancy dropped. Now it's back at like 68 years, maybe like 68 years in a week. That's about what you can hope for if you're a black male, maybe. And you're going to tell me that we made some progress. How is that progress? And especially what they've said about COVID-19. We had the report last week where white people are saying this is nigger disease. Forget all that mask and stuff. This is nigger disease. That's what they said for two years. You're going to tell me that we've made some minor progress in the area of health. I don't even believe that. And especially also if some of that is not black people doing better, but white people regressing back because of drug addictions and opioids and alcohol abuse. You're going to have to give me the, the data on that one, Mr. Morial. They continued and then metaphors. Oh, they said with many of the other areas we've not made progress or things have gotten worse no surprise there he said it's as though we have been suspended in animation locked in I don't know what any of that means metaphors 
it almost sounds like white people are dedicated to racism, white supremacy. Now we're getting closer to being accurate. Again, that's media literacy and how a lot of times, really almost every time without fail, non-white people and white people, when they come on, do reports like this, talk about racism, it's not going to be accurate. Word usage is going to be totally ridiculous and lead you to thinking about this problem in an incorrect manner, which is a huge uh, component of why he, we have not solved this problem. But suspended animation, individuals classified as white are dedicated, committed to white supremacy, racism. And that's why you don't see improvements in these metrics for generations very different if you said it that way then that totally eliminates the oh white people are confused about racism nah if they were confused and dunces about all this black people would have made a lot of progress right even if we were idiots too you would expect sometimes man the the negro idiots do a little bit better nope that never happens white guests only uh, let's see. And that was another one where they said in 21st century America. Now, if you want to focus on this part of the world, that's fine. But hey, this would be the same all over the world and these disparities and what have you. This is not just a U.S. problem, global system of white supremacy, racism. And I felt the other thing, I felt equally offended or it was equally unacceptable giving me health information that I felt was flagrantly inaccurate and it was not cited and then 1B 1A however you look at it it turned into this long shill for voting as though and that was one of the metrics that black people do more voting I don't even care why is that one of the metrics and all this about what Obama did for voting rights and uh, all of that to me is white supremacy racism thinking about this problem about What's going to be so-called progress for black people is related to us voting, how much we vote, who got elected in. We are not going to vote our way out of white supremacy, racism. That would be enough. White guests only. That is anachronistic thinking to even be talking that way in 2022. I could maybe grasp if it was 1970, but it's 2022. We had a long time to do that whole election thing. And I mean, that's disgraceful. White guests only. Next. Uh, the Michigan Wolverine Watchmen, white defendants charged. They're going to kidnap and execute Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, I had posted about that case and we had at least one cow's listener was like, no, I don't know. This is suspicious. They got these informants and how did they get this information? And I don't know. And then all this, this time later, we get two mistrials two not guilty. You heard the report. They speak to uh, one of the professors who says, man, I think this is the first time that I'm aware of in all the years, talking 20 years since 9-11 of the informant or entrapment defense being successfully employed in some sort of terrorism case. This is a first federal government generally doesn't lose cases. I mean, even that alone to lose like, like what? That segment, I almost used the audio segment from the uh, documentary in the shadow of 9-11 where they talked about the Liberty City case. Now, that one, that was all Negros. Some of the Negros were born in the U.S., some of them not. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter. They were all Negros 
that one they had, I think, three mistrials, and they just kept rolling and kept rolling, and we're going to keep prosecuting and keep prosecuting. I think it took four times, three or four trials, and then they finally got them. Or it might have been the third time they finally got them. I think two uh, of the defendants were exonerated along the way, but they finally got the conviction and had to serve all this time. And they were saying some of the same things like, dang, seemed like they were more informants and people on the FBI payroll and what have you than actual defendants here. Like, what the heck? They didn't have any. They're in Liberty City, Florida. They get convicted of a conspiracy of terrorism. They're going to blow up the Sears Tower. And they have no equipment other than what the FBI gave them. I almost was going to play that, but the white supremacy segment before that was even better. Anyway, I thought it was great. They said in the segment like, hey, you know, maybe these guys are innocent. Maybe they didn't, you know, do anything. Maybe there was entrapment. But hey, this is the first time that has ever worked. What's so special about this case? Classified as white. I tell you this, if they had been Floyd Mayweather's cousins up there in Michigan and they had been talking about kidnapping Governor Gretchen Whitmer, we're upset about these COVID-19 shutdowns and what have you, entrapment or no, it would have been just like Liberty City. They would have been convicted. We did have a different cows listener who saw the results of all this and said, hmm, white supremacy racism working perfectly. That could be. Next, uh, let's see. The segment on Carrington Sip Fry, black male, uh, died in Georgia, greater confinement, making state prison. Uh, his mother, um, Jennifer Bradley. Wow. Many tragedies in the system of white supremacy. Um, 17 years old where he is convicted and has to go greater confinement uh, for all of this. And you can contrast that with what happened in Michigan. Uh, but that's one where one. Uh, they said he was bullied or his mother. She said that they felt bullied into taking a plea deal. Now that's interesting. Bullied. This is, she said they were going to rush them to trial and everything. They weren't really prepared and they had paid for an attorney and didn't feel that they had the best uh, representation and all of that. Lots of blackmail privilege, right? Then she details that he goes into greater confinement. This is a black child. Goes into greater confinement. She says they got child being raped. One of the other inmates. We just talked about that. Dr. Uh, Gerald Horn said he's writing a book on that. Black Panther's talking about all this rape that happens in prison and the guards being involved. We talked about that on the program before sentenced to science. Some of the black males in the Philadelphia prison said, oh, yeah. And in fact, all this rape that happens in the prisons. Same thing with the drugs. There's no way it would happen if master wasn't allowing and in many instances involved in all of this homosexual activity rape anti-sex Ed Buck uh, let's see the segment uh, where they talked oh and they said that was COVID related too they said they had one guard in a prison, I think she said with 188 inmates, one guard. 
your son was doomed to die that day talking about uh, Carrington Fry black male who I'm sure everybody knew about because that's black male privilege right next uh, they talked about uh, speaking of black male privilege Patrick Leoya in Michigan now I don't know uh, they said refugees from the Congo uh, is he supposed to have I don't know what kind of privilege that is but whatever the the Negras who are not born here whatever privilege they're supposed to have where they aren't mistreated or they're treated better than the homegrown Negras right isn't that important to some people they make that big distinction and I'm not risk the rest of them especially the Africans like ugh, eight thumbs down like they are the worst right isn't that it dang Maybe he forgot his card to signify I am not one of these, you know, American grown niggers. I'm from the Congo. Back up. Patrick Lumumba. Back up. That didn't happen. Seems frequently I could be in error that to race soldiers, badge or no, niggers is niggers. We got Haitian niggers. We got Congolese niggers. We got Georgian Negras. We got South African Negras. We got U.S. Negras. We got Brazilian Negras. But at the end of the day, Negras is Negras. Patrick Leoya. Even in the report, they said a gun went off. I thought, really? A gun went off? It wasn't fired? No one shot? Like he, it fell on the ground and it just fired somehow and Patrick Leoya was dead even in the segment they're talking to all these white journalists and they called him Patrick that I thought was totally unprofessional totally unacceptable you and Patrick are not homies Mr. Leoya call him by his full name Patrick Leoya get real casual with black people like that's my friend that's my homie. We've been kicking it. We go back like lawn chairs. Really? Anyway, they said the death killing of Patrick Leolia, which might just be a murder execution. Uh, they said this is one of the darkest days in the city's history. It's always the dark. It can't be whitest day. This is a white killer. It can't be whitest day. They didn't even identify the killer at the hands of persons unknown. We had that author on the program. Uh, next, they had the segment Plymouth High School. Whew. So earlier, I played the segment. They were talking about the fire department. They were talking about all the lazy niggers on the fire department. I bet that's what they said about retired firefighter. <laughs> These lazy niggers in here reading Malcolm X and causing us trouble. Uh, in that, or the preface to that report, I played the brief snippet from American History X where Ed Norton they do the news report where he's talking to the reporters my fireman died and these crackhead niggers you know came out and killed him and they get a welfare check and and all that American History X if you haven't seen that film okay so back to Plymouth High School where the white high school student makes the video you niggers and I'm gonna lynch you all and talks about curb stomping black people niggers he didn't specify could be Congolese Negras, Haitian Negras, U.S. Negras, Negras is Negras maybe. When we were talking about curb stomping, I said, Whew. I don't know if everybody knows what curb stomping is, but in the aforementioned film American History X, if you don't know what curb stomping is and are interested, 
you can just watch that film all about white supremacy racism they talk about adolf hitler and all the rest of it and you get to see ed norton's character that you heard curb stomp a black male i thought white people are ignorant about racism because I didn't know what curb stomping was and that this is something that seems to be this is what we do to Negras. I was not aware of this, but hey, this high school student at Plymouth High School, that wasn't lost on me either. Like now, how much are we going to tear down? Plymouth High School, this white student is talking about I'm going to lynch the Negras and do some curb stomping. I am not a parent. This is the sort of thing that you have to think about because they had parents saying, man, I don't feel like my daughter is safe going to school. Yep. Yep. I submit that's probably the way that we should be thinking like before conception. It's probably not going to be the safest for our black daughter to be at this school folks talking about curb stomping her not to mention the white teachers and everything else but I mean a lot of dangers curb stomping next the let's see I'll do two and then we'll get to the phone line. Uh, So the last two, I will I would just read the L.A. Times because they didn't give enough detail. The L.A. Times has several reports on Ed Buck. This is their city. So brief snippet from their report. He was the one that was convicted uh, poisoning, drugging these black males, sexually exploiting them, killing them. Behind the walls of his Lowell Avenue apartment was a nightmare. For nearly a decade, the wealthy white buck lured young black men at the lowest point in their lives, homeless, addicted, resorting to subsistence level sex work, black male privilege, into what he called party and play sessions. A parade of men testified that Buck would offer them extra money if they slammed metaphor or allowed him to inject them with the drug in what prosecutors called a carrot and stick approach metaphor. And that's generally involving animals like really like that metaphor is, you know, I'm trying to catch some sort of prey. I got the carrot or I got the stick. They talk about that with people, but I mean, anyway, uh, he would withhold payment if they didn't smoke enough methamphetamine or let him inject them in his squalid apartment, which was littered with drug paraphernalia and sex toys. Buck treated the men like lab rats in his twisted experiments Norell wrote in a sentencing memo he drugged them to the limit of their body's tolerance once they were unconscious or immobile he sexually assaulted them 
choked them, slapped them. One man, injected with something that left him unable to move, managed to regain control of his body only when Buck revved a chainsaw in front of him, sending adrenaline coursing. Buck liked to see me where I was barely able to stand, barely conscious, he recalled. He wanted me to be falling around all over the place, a state in which Buck would be able to do whatever he liked as far as touching and everything of that sort. Buck at times referred to black men using the Negra witnesses testified at trial. I said, why wasn't he prosecuted for hate crimes? Hey, you could show off your new legislation. Why isn't this a lynching? Black male privilege? To live and die in L.A. indeed. Uh, I said I was going to read two. The other one, I read Frank James because they said he had bigoted account. Now that's when, that's my word, bigot. They might, when I am de, um, deceased, that might be how I get described. Bigoted, Gusty Renegade. They described them as bigoted and they didn't really give any detail on that. The New York Times on Frank James, this is the black male 62-year-old suspect in the shooting in New York, said he purchased his gun in Ohio, spent time in Milwaukee. I said, oh, we got a Jeffrey Dahmer connection there. Writing about Frank James, the New York Times, uh, he seems to have been more focused on his YouTube account where he where the videos he posted frequently devolved into outbursts of homophobia, the misogynistic black male. Misogyny and offensive comments about black people. It's the homophobic and misogynistic black male. Uh, Hispanic. Uh, da, da, da. Offensive comments about black people, Hispanic people, and white people. Mr. James, who is black, directed much of his hatred toward black people, whom he often blamed for the way they were treated in the United States. He expressed admiration for black trailblazers like Martin Luther King Jr. and President Barack Obama, but unleashed vitriol on other black people, including Dante Wright, who was killed by a police officer in Minnesota last year and other young black men shot by the police. He blamed them for their own deaths, saying, you play stupid games and you win a stupid prize, and adding that they deserved to be shot. This is what's reported, might be true, may not be, media literacy. I did mention Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, Keys to the Colors is the subtitle of her book, she said that was one of her patients, black male, having mental health issues. And that was what he said. We need to figure out the keys to the colors. This right here, black male even sounding like this. And they said he apparently had some mental health issues. Don't we all? Who qualifies for mental health in a system of white supremacy? Hmm. I said earlier, regardless of all of that, let those images of him shackled large black male accused of this and accused of terrorism. Now, let's see what happens with this one. Let that image circulate the planet and then check in and see 
how your black boys attempted black husbands, husbands, fathers and what have you, brothers, see how they feel, especially if you live in the New York tri-state area. See how they feel. Those images get circulated a good few days and they're talking about how bigoted he was. Old uh, Mr. James. And then I'm sure they'll go and pick out specific video content that they just found where he has something nasty to say maybe about white people. We'll see what folks have to say. The number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, that would be grand. Uh, Just make sure that everyone gets at least one opportunity to speak. Uh, If you could please use your mute button, that would be great. uh, Just to make sure that we don't have a lot of unnecessary background noise to compete with. Uh, If my one request, if we could not use metaphors for this broadcast, uh, race soldiers, they are phenomenal uh, using metaphors. And we heard a lot of them, even Mark Morial victim going back to his interview where he said, talking about the state of the black union, that if you don't get a seat at the table, you will end up on the menu. And I said, delectable Negro heard that a few times, but delectable Negro. What are we even talking about? I'm not talking about menus. I'm not talking about being eaten, seat at the table, replace white supremacy with justice immediately. That's what we're talking about. He used a lot of metaphor like they were just metaphor, metaphor, metaphor specifics. That is what is needed to solve this problem. Not analogies and similes and comparisons, colorful dialogue, as they call it, specific details counter-racist logic if we can be as exact and precise as possible with our word choice I will give reminders about the metaphors the number again is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate Uh, Let's see. First few folks dialed in. If you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. May I be heard? Greetings, Irie. Louisiana's Cancer Alley. Yes. Um, Greetings, Gus. Hotep. Hotep to everyone on the line and everybody that's going to listen. I've I know I haven't called in in a while. I haven't been able to um, listen to the archives much either because I had to take a break. And um, it's been a good break from listening to reports on racism, white supremacy. Um, I've been studying metaphysics and psychology, reading, and... uh, taking more time to learn uh, the meta-nature, which is uh, the language of the Kimite. So I'm proud to say I can read, uh, you know, stuff that's in the pyramid walls or on papyrus is pretty, pretty good now. Um, And I'm, it's, I'm reporting this because it's been good for mental health because 
this year is more productive for me as a victim of racism, but at the same time, I, I can kind of still feel this mental strain that could occur if I abdicate too much of my brain space to um, reports on racism and white supremacy. I'm more in the like solution mindset right now, especially considering I have to absorb a lot of energy from from children, uh, teenagers. I've been pushing into a high school and they're really confused. And you can see it in their eyes. Their eyes are wide open, literally. Sometimes pupils, like, not dilated like they're high, but they're really searching our faces and are listening to our tones to see if we're being honest, if we know what we're talking about. And I'm just dedicating so much time to being prepared. Um, as far as the Michigan, um, I didn't get to hear the headlines. I basically wanted to say this up, you know, to everyone. But um, what I did catch about the Michigan um, group, uh, yeah, yeah, the benefits of being white and probably still suspected race soldiers. I saw some of their pictures when I heard the news before this uh, program, and I was like, yeah, buddy, one of them in particular, he looks like he's part of that lone wolf kind of mindset that they have. Um so, I mean, the FBI, you know, they're refined and they are sophisticated racist, suspected racists themselves. They would know how to entrap people, including white people who are considered powerless. Um, but I'm not surprised that they didn't get convicted of anything. Uh, as far as Mark Moriel, which you just said, you know, um, I looked it up to see if he's still the president of the Urban League and he is. He's speaking from uh, an economic uh, standpoint, I suspect, for the non-white black people who represent the, the metaphor of getting a seat at, a, at the table, which is why he said, if you don't, you said, what, if you don't sit down, you get, if you ain't at the table, you get eaten thing and you know, internalizing racism, white supremacy as a politician from the city I'm I'm from, you know what I'm saying? He's seen a lot. Um his own father um being there at one time, so being groomed by his father to have to deal with race racism and then becoming mayor and then dealing with racism and then becoming part of the urban league and getting more contact with even more sophisticated racists, I'm sure these well-meaning white people who are liberal or, you know, conservatives, but, you know, that share their their time with this victim of racism, you know, making him feel that he's peer-to-peer with them. I'm sure they confuse him into thinking that economics is the way out or the way up, if that's a metaphor, pardon me, out of racism, white supremacy, you know, um, I wish him well, but you know that that that's not it. And I'm getting. I want to tell you guys. Last thing, I emailed you about how to do the will, and I'm not all the way there yet. But I I got a secret. So there's the little blocks that you can do step aerobics on. 
I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. We put the plastic little things under them and raise them up. So what I did to train my, my arch or my back was set up the, uh, the step thing as low as I could get it where I was comfortable without pulling something. And I do three sets of 30 or 40 seconds just laying back. So when I looked in the mirror today, I was almost all the way up in the wheel. So thank you for your uh, advice. And I think I may actually be um, going for fitness training. I don't know if I'll do yoga yet because I have to work on my ankles, but I definitely want to do uh, yoga training. I mean, eventually, and then start with um, spin, spin bike, because I love uh, spinning and spinning actually got my knees to the point where I can run again. So hope everyone. Thank you. Take care of yourself, drink water and, uh, don't eat, don't eat uh, things with faces. I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Irie, in Louisiana, Cancer Alley. That is so funny. Drink more water. Hey, Amen. Drink more water. Don't eat things with faces. I, uh, I thought you said you're almost there with your will. Uh, will. W-I-L-L, because we were just talking about that yesterday. I was like, oh, that's right. That's a great reminder. Thanks. If anybody has any tips how we should get that will together, things you you should put in your will, especially for parents, because we were just talking about that yesterday. So anybody has tips on that? I totally forgot. Let us know if you've done uh, your will or any suggestions for victims of racism for things they should include in their W-I-L-L will. It took me a second to catch like, oh, wait a minute. Victim, she's saying will W. H-E-E-L, Urdva Danyarasana for the yogis, uh, the posture. I was like, oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Like, glad to see you are doing it safely. I forgot you can do that supported if you have uh, a bolster can do the same thing if you get a because uh, that's soft. That way, if you do slip out, you're falling on something that's nice and it's like a pillow, basically, but it's a little uh, slightly more firm but a pillow would work too you could do that too uh but you could just get the yoga blocks and do the same thing to accomplish the stacking like you were talking about with the stepper uh and that way if you do slip right as you're strengthening uh your back and shoulders and everything but that is awesome i'm sure you'll get it just takes a little practice uh just make sure your elbows don't uh flare out try to keep those elbows lined up with your shoulders and uh ankles underneath your knees pressing and toes pointed uh, straight forward but I'm sure you'll get it awesome great pose really strengthening your back and uh, opening up through the hips more yoga exercise very important dealing with all of the stress and strain that she's saying she's even seeing in the young people which is not a surprise at all Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary to share proceed Hello, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hello, good evening. Can I be heard? Okay, good. Um, so, good evening to everybody, listeners, and callers, um, and the host. Um, the story about the black male who was killed by his girlfriend, I think that's a, um, a perfect example of a tragic arrangement, as you guys call it on your show. And... Um, Anybody who, who doesn't understand what that means, when you look into a, a relationship like that and the situation that was going on, what do you say, toxic and all of that, and then next thing you know, he's dead. And it's like, well, there's nobody 
there's no, it's a victim. It's a, it's a, there's, a, there's no culprit. No, we don't know who did it. She did it, but you know, it was self-defense, even though we don't have a reason for it. So there's that. So that was a little weird. So strange. So, but expected. So that's why you should stay away from the tragic arrangement. Um, the story with the sheriff and the um, jailer. I was gonna actually the 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 sheriff. He was white, also, right? Yes, sir. If this is the story you're talking about, uh, Sheriff Paul Watkins, uh, Bullet County, uh, where he had the recording of him nigger this and all the profanity, and his granddaughter's married yeah. to it. Yes, yes. They're all these are all individuals classified as white. All right, great. So with that being said, I think the story about the the sheriff who snitched on the jailer for being racist was really retaliation for being fired. He probably was with him laughing about niggas and all those things before he was fired. So we'll see where that goes. And um, let's see. The story about Ed Buck is perfect evidence for the validity of Dr. Curry's book, A Man Not. Because that's what happens to men. Well, black men that are not really men in the society, anything can happen to you, especially under the circumstances that these guys are so-called gay. So who knows if their families weren't even around them and they were like ostracized from their communities. And this is what happens when black people, you know, are vulnerable. And um, the story about Frank James in New York, it seems unclear from the beginning. And um, there were too many, too many things that that would never really go wrong that went wrong. They said there wasn't any cameras on and all these things. So from the beginning, I just felt like white people were practicing white supremacy with that story. He looks confused. And um, understanding white supremacy is 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 very vital to to, to surviving in in this world and. Um, it's, it's it's a part of all the people activities. So if you don't understand that or try to understand that, everything is going to confuse you. So when you say um, media literacy, if you don't start with white, white supremacy, have a system that's dominating all people activities and trying to understand that, there is no media literacy. Because even if you understand what's being said, you won't understand what's being said because you won't understand that you're in a system of white supremacy. So people should start with that first. Just understanding that there's a system that controls all activities that we take part in. And um, what else? Um, I think another thing, um, I've been speaking to a family member more, my sister actually, and um, we're, we usually don't get along, but now we're getting along because we talk about white supremacy. So I think black people should stay away. This is just my opinion. I think black people should stay away from each other unless they're going to talk about ways to understand and deal with living in a white supremacist world. And um, I hope everybody exercises, meditates about about what's going on around them and tries to get some rest. I took your advice a few years ago and bought a very expensive mattress and it's great. So everybody should try to get some rest, exercise, and um, yeah, that's it. Thank you. Bless us. Ah, 
literally bring tears to my eyes. Like I mean, I could have just said that for oh, that's beautiful. Like you and your sister are getting along better and all that, which is totally worthy of you know being a little misty and wow, that's amazing. Not a bit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said it's probably the bed that got you misty-eyed. <laughs> you know me so well, but I, I was totally, I was totally um, appreciative. That is amazing. Um, you and your sister, not just getting along, because he said they're getting along and talking about racism, which does not always happen. Just because you know people agree that we are in a system of racism, white supremacy does not necessarily mean they will be able to get along and talk about this in a courteous manner. But that is. Oh. Can I say one thing? Yes, sir. Let's hear it. Sorry to, um, well, the, the issue is that um, the pressure of white supremacy is so strong on black people that when, when somebody's always around you talking about white supremacy, you're going to reach a point where you have issues that you can't have find answers for. And if you try understanding white supremacy, you're going to get an answer. And then you go, oh, my God, it works. And then you keep trying and trying to find out how it works. And, you keep, and then that's how it happens. Because I'm in the ghetto, so it's very hard to get people to care about white supremacy. But it works because they're going to have problems and they're going to need solutions. And the only solutions I have is understanding white supremacy. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Helping people solve problems generally does get their attention, like uh, being able to help other victims of racism solve problems. And generally, the problem that's all we've been talking about today but definitely do not let me minimize that is spectacular i'm i'm super happy like uh hopefully that'll be really productive and you all can share and maybe even incorporate some of the other family members where they will you know want to start talking about this and sharing information and learning things and that is spectacular not to minimize either getting a bed to get more rest like and this is, I believe, within the last 30 days, the second cows listener who has contacted Gus about investing in either they have or are going to invest to improve their quality of sleeping. Man, race soldiers, they everything that you heard, right? All those news segments that we heard and all the the jailer they was talking about and all that sitting in there. My granddaughter's married to a nigga. man. I did not think I was going to be playing that segment with Chris Rock so soon. I will make sure I get that in and not forget. I totally believe that it is possible. Chris Rock's entire career, including the slap, may have been ghostwritten by white people. People don't know what that term means. That means that you may go out and give the speech performance, whatever it is, but actually someone else wrote the script that you are narrating all because I have seen where too many white people love Chris Rock, including the it's black people and it's Negras. That's what the shit that he was talking about. <laughs> Sheriff Watkins, he said, my granddaughter, Cowbell, she is uh, married to this Negro. He says, it's just black people and it's Negras. And my granddaughter got a Negro. Like what in the world? I had no idea I was gonna be playing that segment again. That's the same thing Hulk Hogan said too. He said if she got him, if you gotta get a nigger, get one of these football playing niggers. Like Jesus Christ, like, you just get some nigger like we just heard from in the ghetto. My God, what are you doing? Now again, I thought white people are supposed to be ignorant about white supremacy racism. 
Hmm. Anyway, uh, Chris Rock, his entire career, the slap, that joke, niggers and but all of that may be authored by race soldiers. It's this be a funny one. Go out and do that one, Chris. And then we sit around and celebrate. That's black culture. Just the thought that came to mind hearing that because uh, I've heard too many white. If it was just one, but I mean, that sketch is like 30 years old and to still hear white people saying that in 2022, like, hmm. Anyway, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Other folks, hand up, commentary to share. Proceed. May have you heard? Color in Florida? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to guests, the hosts, the listeners, and callers. Uh, I wanted to mention just a few things. Uh, the segment about um, the the white woman that did the stabbing, uh, I think Courtney Taylor, I've seen some reports. Um, I think it was another white person that was basically trying to make it seem like uh, like she could already predict that the black male would be portrayed as, I guess, the aggressor or some kind of um, person that was beating her or something or doing some kind of domestic violence type of thing. Uh, but it seemed like she was also trying to say that the the white woman was mainly to blame. I can't remember the uh, social media post, but the the Baker Act as well. I found that very interesting. Like I've never heard of too many people going to, going into uh, being Baker acted. Um, but white supremacy, it looks like it's being practiced in that situation, at least uh, up till now. Um, it'll be interesting to see the updates that'll come about from that story. And the next is the white student, from what they say was the high school student that was making the white supremacist threats about the curve stomping and lynching and things like that, like, I didn't even, I don't even know if they mentioned what the student name would be or anything like that, but the, the black male in New York, uh, they had all kind of details on him. But for this uh, white supremacist team making those kind of racist threats, I don't even remember whether if they, maybe they interviewed some white people from that school area or district or the something i just remember um listening to the parent uh responding to those threats and it did look like or sound like 
she was terrified because I would be uh, terrified as well. Like, you know, what can be done about this? You know, um, having my child be sent to a school like that. Uh, in Michigan, I think they were mentioning the uh, the four suspects that they, I guess, uh, let off or they dismissed the charges. Now, I noticed that on that segment, the language, right, it was um, – I think that was a, a white woman where she said that the jury, uh, since there were white males or something like that being charged, maybe some of the jury are starting to, I think the word she used is, um, I can't remember exactly, uh, identify or something like that, something similar, synonymous to that. But she didn't say white because that it will only make sense to me. The white jurors, you know, like a you know predominantly white juror, jury, uh, identified with them, and that I think that would be coming close to describing a system of white supremacy in the area of law. That's that's what I was thinking. And my last one is the uh, the black male Frank James. And the report I saw earlier this week, um, how, number one, they said that he, I guess, was listed or named as a suspect, how he pretty much called law enforcement and gave them his location. But the news media, of course, white supremacy, hey, you know, this 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 person with a, a camera, you know, he was the one to catch him. They made it look like he was the one to find the uh, black male, but he was the one that, from my understanding, gave his own location. Um, so I don't know, it came off like it was obfuscation there. And the, my last one is where the, the black mayor, they and they kept showing this report, and if anybody heard it, he was like, hey, you know, New York City, we got them, we got them, you know, like, um, and I know I'm using the word like, but it is in comparison as though they're talking about some kind of an animal or something. I don't know if anyone else noticed that as well, but I just wanted to mention that. Um, and, and that's all I have to share. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, color in Florida. Uh, that is interesting. The Baker Act, uh, folks down in Florida, if there have been other crimes, do you remember that? someone where there's a, a fatality murder could be depending on the charge and Baker Act like well wait a minute got to check on this person like do you recall that I'm sure they have a lot of killings down in Florida think about it that has you know comes to mind or even you can do some research check you know do some searches online and see if it pops up other cases in Florida criminal history where the Baker Act has come into play where there is a homicide. Uh, with uh, I did see that with Frank James, where they were saying that the white fella, I believe he was a security surveillance camera installing cameras, where they said that uh, he was credited with, I guess, participating or I don't know, with the apprehension. Um, I think they said in the report that I played that they, I guess, had a number of people who gave in tips on where this fellow was, including. The suspect himself, Mr. James, <laughs> they said, as you said, who 
called in and told him where he was. Manhattan, McDonald's, and you know, no, uh, no incident. Turns himself in without without issue or what have you. Uh, but yeah, I did not see as much focus on that in the reports that I saw. That yes, he allegedly called, turned himself in. Like, uh, hmm. that does that would at least blunt perhaps some of this. We've got mad Negro out on the loose and all the rest of it willingly cooperating handing himself in no carnage uh, let's see other folks who dialed in uh, if we missed you thus far line should be open proceed Greetings, everyone. can I be heard uh, heard both of you uh, we'll get uh, our Bay Area mom and then that retired firefighter in Florida Okay, thank you for taking my call. Greetings to everyone. Um, so uh, in the clips, the the lady was talking about um, the air pollution in San Diego and um, how there how she's um, close to the ports over there as well, and um, how she it was so awful that she you know she didn't want to even have children to breathe that um, air because she would more likely have to stay there. Uh, I'm sure she wouldn't want to, but perhaps maybe she can't afford to move somewhere else, you know, so she'd have to, she has to stay there. That's what I would think. Um, In West Oakland, California, the air pollution is awful. Um, to me, it's a different feel, a different, it's just different once you get to West Oakland. And even the people that were born and raised there, their skin has a different uh, hue because of the, I believe, Roger's making it up, because of the air quality. The air quality is awful. And there's a port that way as well. So, um, well, anyway, um, and there's a lot of pollution um, in West Oakland as far as all those uh, uh, warehouses and all the toxic air and Safeway, too, because, I mean, a Safeway, Richmond as well, because they have those refineries and they always have uh, spills and uh, something going on to where they, they they pay out money to the uh, children at maybe when they get eighteen if you were born in Richmond some a lot of times they would get checks by eighteen because um, Safeway and all those refineries Chevron they they um, have those spills and all the toxics from the oils and um, so forth so. Uh, it, it's too bad. Um, I wonder if that has a lot to do with a lot of ailments um, and people that have to live in those areas because of that uh, quality of air. And um, uh, in California, I guess they're talking about reparations um, or what is that, the uh, task force or oh, whatever it is, they're trying to get a little group together to discuss perhaps making a bill and maybe perhaps how, what, who will get whatever they're giving 
it just seems so strange because around election time, there's always something, some little prize dangling in front of black people. And then you just stated that they said that we're the ones that vote, we do the most voting. So we're always voting for hope. And so I think that reparations dangle in in front of us will make us think that there's hope and get us out there to vote on these bills. Um, and that's all. Thank you for taking my call. I'll, I'll mute my line. Hope. That's what they said, uh, President Obama. Hope. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Much obliged for your patience, sir. Green no white friends. No white friends. Uh, I've been on uh, uh, emergency calls where uh, law enforcement, law enforcement, uh, Baker Act uh, patients. Uh, and basically, what what that is that that's that's a forced. Uh, means of being accosted. Uh, but if that's normally determined, that's, that's determined, you know, for something medical or mental. So my suspicion is that, is that they already had determined that uh, she was not a murder suspect. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's a lot of uh, strange things that uh, has been going on with that with that particular uh, case. Uh, uh, the first thing that I saw on it was these so-called friends, and all of them were white. All of them were white, but it was something. I, I think what gained my suspicion was the name of the victim. And uh, so they did have a picture of of the victim, but they did not have a picture of the person that killed him. And the friends were saying it was the girlfriend. So that motivated me <laughs> to look up uh, and see if I could find pictures of the quote-unquote girlfriend. And because even with the news, they didn't have a picture. So when I saw the picture, I said, "Oh, okay, I see why they're not—they're uh, not, uh, they're not uh, uh, putting her picture on the news or anything like that." You know, white female. Uh, within 24 hours after she was released, she was back on, uh, I guess, Instagram uh, or something like that. Whatever that is that she makes money for. She also was in a club. <laughs> was in the club uh, uh, at least about between 24 and 48 hours after the the, uh, the killing. Uh, no white friends. Uh, DCS program. DCS program. Uh, we had a session today. 
uh, based on, uh, I think I stated a few days back about my uh, field trip to Florida A&M University uh, to uh, visit with the assistant head coach uh, and uh, the staff at Florida A&M University football team. And based on uh, me being impressed by the head football coach on the last day after the uh, spring game, he had a hour, more than an hour long session uh, with a black male law enforcement officer who I actually coached when he was in high school down here in Miami uh, on uh, uh, sexual assault. Uh, that motivated me to show the film on Brian Banks to the young fellows today. Uh, I I did not show the whole uh, quote unquote movie. It was actually uh, I, I don't have a documentary on it, but I, I showed the movie on it up until up until the point where the movie. Uh, showed the viewer on the instance that got uh, Mr. Banks in so much trouble as a uh, teenager, high school teenager. Uh, then I cut it off, uh, and we talked brief briefly because I'm going to show the, another portion of it next Saturday. you gotta, you got to be strategic like that with uh, – with, uh, uh, young people as young as eight, nine years old. Uh, you know, you don't want to have them sitting around looking at a movie for two hours or something like that. So, uh, basically, uh, that particular time lasted maybe an hour. Then we talked about it. Uh, they, they asked questions and, uh, you know, and got, you know, we got answers. And, uh, I also gave a chance for them to make statements. Uh, also, uh, other than that, uh, one has to really understand on why such programs are needed. Uh, you have a situation where, uh, I would say primarily mothers, black mothers literally are, are desperately bringing their male children to us. Uh, because of the what what I observe is almost a desperation to be able to have some assistance, some male assistance to assist them in the process of the attempt. And all and all of us, you know, are victims of racist white supremacy. And the only thing that we can do is actually attempt to to. Uh, uh, instruct or quote-unquote something called raise, uh, help raise these uh, young people. And uh, there was a particular case today to whereas the mother was kind of like really on, really on an edge of almost desperation because of uh, her uh, son uh, really had been, according to her, giving her, you know, a lot of trouble 
I'm not gonna really get into it. Not really gonna get into it, but it was real, real uh, uh, tough situation. That's the best word I can I can come up with with it. And uh, we uh, took turns and uh, to uh, counsel with him. Uh, I more or less was stating to the young fellow that uh, uh, I can understand that it's some sort of a problem. Uh, and I asked him questions about, you know, uh, who is the person who who does all that they can to supply you with food, clothing, and shelter, point to that person. Because there were several of us standing around with the mother and him, and he kept pointing to that lady, <laughs> uh, you know. And uh, so I basically asked him, well, do you think that she is the uh, center of that problem and uh he was saying no i said well i'm not going to deny this is a problem that exists with you but i don't think it's her so we got to find out on the center of this problem and that's where kind of like where i left it at as far as you know my part of talking with him because in some cases i i myself at the age that he was at the time had some issues like that myself. Uh, a lot of things happen when uh, there is uh, a quote-unquote breakup between uh, a uh, the two attempted parents, the attempted father as well as the attempted mother, and children. That it 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 basically puts a strain on the child from the standpoint of being confused on what's going on. And in turn, with a male child, they they're going to uh, behave in a certain manner uh, at a certain at a certain age. Also, I just leave it at that, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Bravo to retired firefighter and the other folks, uh, Mr. Clark, DS, DCS program participants, uh, for getting out there and. Uh, working with these uh, young victims and attempted parents, single moms, trying to do the best that they can to help these young folks like Bravo, like uh, Ian heard that before, helping uh, victims to solve problems. Very important. Uh, sometimes just asking questions to help folks kind of work through some of their frustrations. But Bravo on the problem solving. Absolutely no friends uh you know some of that hopefully you would have to have uh parents who are doing as much as they can to teach you about racism white supremacy from a young age so you can kind of recognize the danger that white people represent in this system let me see let me get this one report together really quick all righty let's see this is related to the report that we heard about the fire department just heard from a retired firefighter the allegations that they were nigger this lazy firefighters too many black people blah 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 they're looking to uh, suspend the fire department they said that they were these race soldiers were making comments about fantability I said well maybe folks don't know who that is so this report, three Sharon Hill officers have been charged in the fatal shooting of Fanta Billy, eight years old, 
After a grand jury investigation, officers Devon G. Smith, Sean Patrick Dolan, and Brian James Devaney face counts of voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, and reckless endangerment. Delaware County District Attorney Jack Stolsteiner Steimer, said, at the same time, the prosecutor's office is withdrawing murder charges against two teenagers it had accused of contributing to the death by engaging in a gunfight 140 feet away that drew the officer's fire. Those charges filed last year had outraged some in the community who said it took the focus away from the police officer's culpability in Fanta's death. So they charged two black males who did not shoot this little girl who were engaged in their own conflict 140 yards away. The police fired hearing this shot and killed this eight year old black uh, female. Continues. uh, The girl was shot August 27 as she and her family were leaving a game at Academy Park High School. The officers had been monitoring the crowd as it dispersed heard gunfire about a block away and then turned to see a vehicle heading toward them mistakenly believing the car was involved in that shooting the officers opened fire striking the car multiple times investigators said bullets flew past the vehicle hitting four people including Fanta who died at the scene in her mother's arms now that is tacky on many 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 accounts I guess I wouldn't lose in that maybe minimize conflict with other victims because uh, this started with some black people who were not at this event at all having some sort of conflict so minimize conflict with other victims but man if these enforcement officers if there's a shooting blocks away it's not in your immediate area and a car comes down the street towards you you don't know if they're speeding to get home to see something on Hulu if they got pizza in the car that they want to get when it's piping hot you have no idea you open fire that's your training in a crowded area where a high school football game just let out that's your training as an officer I don't know if this is a suspect I don't know if this is a victim this could be someone who's trying to get away from the shooting no idea open fire that's your training I submit that that sort of response that happens black lives do not matter I submit if it had been a crowd of white students white football players white game just let out is white parents and their families white children walking around I don't think the training for police officers is gun battle block away 140 feet since they want to be precise for people measuring that's about a half a football field so I mean that's not exactly you know you're going to have to run. That's right. not exactly right in front of you. I just begin opening fire. A car drives past. Who's in there? Who's around? It's a crowd. All <laughs> that like, really? Anyway, the whole reason we bring that up, apparently the fire fighters, white, were talking about fantability too. I have no idea. Like, why does the death of this eight-year-old why does that have to come up in your conversation about how lazy black firefighters are retired firefighter lazy and shiftless and no count black people are and oh yeah that old no count fantability these are these are the firefighters these are the folks 
we could be on the verge of death. Sometimes they have medical calls too. Todd Firefighter told us about that. This is the way that you're talking about us? Like, wow. It, I mean, we do not understand what it means to be white. That's all I can say. They haven't even adjudicated this case yet, which they were going to charge black males for that too. No count black males. Uh, we assume everybody is good. We will be back. Uh, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, Sunday again 3 p.m. Eastern 2 p.m. Central 12 noon Pacific Uh, we'll see if we can get an update on child Q we talked about her last time uh, as well as COVID-19 updates did they hear Frank James uh, over how was that talked about in their part of the world but that'll be tomorrow 3 p.m. Eastern 12 noon Pacific much obliged for everyone joining us this evening hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening sobriety would be best Ed Buck Incidentally, that was one thing I was going to say. They said that these young males were gay. We don't know that they were so-called gay because it said some of them, they were desperate. It may have been that I'm not gay, but if he's going to give me such amount of money to do these acts, I'll do that. I don't know if that makes you gay. That just makes you a victim of white supremacy. And a privileged black male. Sobriety would be best. Uh, If you're out and about, if you see someone being hostile and rowdy, this is not a time for confrontations with strangers. You should be thinking that that person could be armed. Uh, In fact, may have an entire armed entourage. If you did not leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. You can call enforcement officers as you're vacating. If you're in a vehicle, you are sober, you are buckled, you are not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no playing around with sex throw away children that benefits race soldiers every time Cows as listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. You'll see the links for cash app Venmo PayPal uh, cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows much obliged for all the folks who have kept us on the air for 13 plus years. Amazon wish list as well. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.